The Joe Rogan experience. One of the things that I got out of this recent obsession with uh, American Indian culture and these stories was realizing how little I knew about the history of this country. You know, mm -hmm. you, you might know, you might have a, a, a basic understanding of what happened that you learned in school. It's real peripheral. Mm -hmm. You know, it's very surface. And then upon reading these books, it made me realize, like, what happened here? Like, this is what happened here over the a course of a couple hundred years is almost unprecedented in, in history. Like, that this nation was conquered by all these invaders that just kept coming in, mm -hmm. kept changing the rules, kept breaking treaties, making treaties, breaking treaties, wiping people out, calling things battles when they were really just massacres mm -hmm. of women and children. I mean, there's some horrendous, horrendous stories of the justification of these massacres that were no, no different than any other horrific barbarian slaughter that mm -hmm. you might have heard about in history that's looked down upon. But for years in this country, they were taught as if they were actual battles. I mean, the, the, the history of this country with in, in regards to the tribes and the American settlers and the soldiers is, is terrifying. Mm -hmm. It's terrifying that this just happened a couple of hundred years ago and that people are, are capable of these things and that the ancestors of these people are just roaming around today. And that's mm -hmm. what this country was founded on. This country was founded on massacres. Right. And, and and that policy has been studied by folks like Adolf Hitler mm. and it was even included. He talked about uh, studying how uh, the U.S. treated American Indians in his book, Mein Kampf. Really? Yes. So um, uh, and but it wasn't just the battles. Um, there have been many different types of battles uh, that we consider warfare, though it hasn't been done with, you know, guns and... Legal. Right. Legal battles. Exactly. Um, I mean, since the 1600s, um, Europeans have been trying to educate us and assimilate us and, and civilize us and have passed laws once the United States... Uh, became an, a new country in the 1800s, passed laws to take our children and move them far away and and punish them if they spoke their language, uh, cut their hair, put them in these schools that were military-based. And they studied academics in the morning, and then they did trade in the afternoon. And, and, and those trades were to help pay for the schools. So they were basically indentured servants, slave labor, um, making sure that the school could have enough funds to um, pay for their own education. And uh, uh, the boarding school history in the United States and Canada has horrendous, horrendous stories. And the, these schools were funded by the U.S. federal government. And uh, the association and other groups are trying to get um, the United States to release records of, of who were the children in these schools. We think there's a, there were about 500 boarding schools across the United States and about at least 20,000 children that we can figure out were, were killed, were di died in these schools. 
Um, Jesus. Yeah. So there's the Carlisle. Um, uh, some of this work has been done at the Carlisle Indian School in, in Pennsylvania, which is now owned by the Army Corps, um, Army Corps of Engineers. And um, there are some tribes that are trying to repatriate their children that are in graves there and, and bring them back home. So this has been a process all over the country trying to figure out, you know, who these children were, uh, where they belong, and, and to bring them home. And it's, it's been a really difficult process for the How organizations. How did so many of them die? Disease, um, uh, not being fed, um, working too much, um, all those things that could kill a, a child. And all these things, there's records of all these different children and the places they stayed? No, no? We, we, we haven't been able to, uh, folks that are doing this work have not been able to find all the records. And like I said, the federal government um, probably doesn't have the records, probably has mismanaged a lot of the records regarding um, these boarding schools. And, and there were different times, there have been different eras of Indian policy where the federal government was like, oh, wait, this isn't working. Let's, let's get out of this business of teaching Indians. Let's give it to the churches and let them do it for a while. Mm. And then it would come back into the federal government. And, but the churches would have it. And of course, we've heard all of the horrible things that, that different churches have done to children. Um, and there are still many boarding school survivors today that can tell those stories of abuse, um, sexual and physical, um, and um, who still live with that today. Uh, there's an organization called the Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition that is really um, working on these kind of issues and have um, are pulling together the stories and are also working with survivors uh, to try to heal from that that trauma that's not just theirs but it's it's this inter intergenerational historic trauma that has been with our communities for a couple hundred years now um, so there there are a lot of stories like that and and this again this is u s federal policy um, you know they would um, uh, while they were, while the U.S. was um, building the reservation system and 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 putting tribes um, uh, kind of in these blockades, if you did not send your child to school, you weren't given rations, you weren't given your food. If you practiced your culture, you you could be killed for practicing your culture, um, using your language, um, because and. Because this was the assimilation policy of the day, and this happened, um, uh, I would say, 1850, 1870s through the 1920s. There was this horrific period of federal Indian policy of, of doing, trying to do away with language, um, uh, communal-type living, uh, uh, cultural practices and religion. Uh, so this isn't just, you know, gun warfare. This has been a continuing policy that even affects us today. So it was gun warfare until they got the Indians to move into the reservation, and then it was basically an annihilation of the culture. Right. You know, and it meets all the definitions of genocide from, yeah. the, um, from uh, international law. <laughs> well, hello there. Pull up a chair. 
I think you're going to need to bring along a box of tissues also for this one. Uh, lots of things going on here. You know, I just thought, well, let me take a look at... Um, I had run across some um, graves of children in Canada a few years ago, and I thought, well, you know, because we've been talking about the abuse of other children, like, for example, the orphan train children and the other ones that were being shifted around the country, you know, all those boats from Ireland, Africa, all over the place. But I hadn't really looked at what's going on with the native children. And um, as it turns out, quite a lot, because the bodies started getting uncovered in unmarked graves in Canada a few years ago. And right now, as I speak, there's efforts going on to find some of these children. And, uh, well, it's stuff that I can verify, okay? And so I'm not saying the whole Indian story is correct. Um, but what I'm going to be doing in this show is explaining to you why of all the genocides they did and are currently doing toward the rest of us, this one seems like a really huge one. So a lot of twists and turns because, for example, I was getting confused over, oh, I don't know, why are all these people with, you know, brown skin getting killed by smallpox and measles? So I wandered into that whole area. And it is something else, just something else. So anyway, so something, because there's really nothing to laugh about in this show, I will read you something that I thought was kind of amusing. Remember, all of these events that hit the national news or international news are psyops, okay? And if you ever want to study liars, it's a great opportunity because although I do believe it is compartmentalized, meaning that each character probably doesn't know the overall picture. Um, so it's an important time to take a look at what do liars in action look like because you got to figure the top people, like the top cops and stuff, they would be probably more informed than the people who were, you know, acting like they were running from the school, for example. So just observe them. See how they look. Observe their body types. Why do the cops at the top all have rather female-looking body types, right? Use it as an opportunity to continue to learn more. So let me read this page here, and it was uh, from The Onion, which is the humorous newspaper, okay? But they, but they nailed it, okay? The title was... No way to prevent this, says only nation where this regularly happens. As a matter of fact, the United States and um, Switzerland, Switzerland has a ton of weapons also, but they don't have all these mass shootings. And the big difference is they have training for these weapons. So this kind of backs up my point that I've been making for years now that Part of the plan, not the bug, is to let people think they've got some sort of security with weapons, right? How secure is anybody going to be against a tank? So I've said all along, keeping the weapons in place would likely be to get people to use those weapons to turn on each other, right? Save them the trouble. So anyway, so let me get back to reading this here. The title, No Way to Prevent This, says only nation where this regularly happens. Uvalde, Texas. In the hours following a violent rampage in Texas in which a lone attacker killed at least 21 individuals and injured several others, citizens living in the only country where this kind of mass killing routinely occurs reportedly concluded Tuesday that there was no way to prevent the massacre from taking place. This was a terrible tragedy. 
But sometimes these things just happen, and there's nothing anyone can do to stop them, says Idaho resident Kathy Miller, echoing sentiments expressed by tens of millions of individuals who reside in a nation where over half of the world's deadliest mass shootings have occurred in the past 50 years, and whose citizens are 20 times more likely to die of gun violence than those of other developed nations. It's a shame, but what can we do? Really, there wasn't anything that was going to keep this individual from snapping and killing a lot of people. It's what they really wanted. At press time, residents of the only economically advanced nation in the world, where roughly two mass shootings have occurred every month for the past eight years, were referring to themselves and their situation as helpless. What? So, yeah, um, regarding ourselves as helpless, right? We have morphed into the government must help us. We are helpless against this happening. See how the, um, um, you know, the programming has taken place. So anyway, so um, interesting thing about um, all the firearms in this country you think, wow, got a big problem, right? Yeah, I mean, I mentioned at some point that when this thing hit, the things they made official, you know, can't close down businesses were, in fact, places that sold firearms and places that sold alcohol, okay? So that's the plan, not the bug. If there was such mass outrage and concern, wouldn't you think those would be the things when people are going into a crisis situation would be removed from? But that is how it works. Another very, very, very interesting aspect of all of this is this. You know, in this country, vaccines are pretty much exempt from lawsuits. I think the last batch of vaccines are completely exempt but the other vaccines, I mean, if you have the strength to fight it out, I mean, you can go to the vaccine courts in Washington, D.C. You know, you got an injured kid on your hands, your family's in disarray. So, yeah, I'm sure the plan would be to pull together a massive lawsuit and go to Washington, D.C. to file charges would never happen, right? So, anyhow, so you see how this goes. But the other very interesting thing, which you may or may not know about, is who else is protected? Well, firearm manufacturers. So, they're protected under the Lawful Commerce in Arms Act, okay? It is the Protection of Lawful Commerce in Arms Act, PLCAA, is a United States law that protects firearms manufacturers and dealers from being held liable when crimes have been committed with their products. Boy, isn't that a handy little deal, right? Okay, so I have just a wide variety of things here. Um, oh, interestingly enough, this week, Tesla CEO Elon Musk announced in a tweet that he welcomed a global recession so money would stop raining down on fools. <laughs> Depends on who you think is a fool, right, kids? Uh, here's the deal on all this money raining down. This is the part that kind of think about this, okay? Over the next few days, the next couple minutes, however you think about it, okay? Think about this. We have essentially been tricked by money, which means that we have had lots of relationships get destroyed. We've had jobs we didn't get because of money. 
all of these things, you know, relatives we learn to not like because of money, all these other kinds of weird, strange program things. Okay, they had to program us to turn on each other for this to all work. And money plays a critical role in all of this if you just stop and think about it, okay? But here's what I really want you to think about, okay? Money is not even real, right? I think I've proven that, right? I've said for years we're surrounded by psychopaths, and everybody's like, oh, Diane, you're so crazy. How could you say that? Well, I've proven all this, right? So here's the catcher that really got me this week when it kind of all, all, all the years kind of sunk into my head this week, right? When I'm looking at these poor Indian children, um, all of it sunk into my head. And I thought, you know what? We've given up all of these things, even given up the beautiful planet that we once had because they were able to, you know, just rob and rape everything, right? But we gave it all up for something and worked our tails off all of these years for something that wasn't even real. Talk about the magic of money. Does it get any crazier than that? And along with that, I had a couple other revelations this week, okay? Because you know how they have um, all this deal with the Jews, right? I think there may be two groups of Jews, but I'm still not sure about that. But I'm real sure there's one main group of Jews. And I am completely 100% sure on that right now. Maybe maybe, maybe an eighteenth of a hundred percent of a margin, right? But I'm 100% the group we're looking at are the Ashkenazi Jews. Well, how can we tell this? Well, just by simple facts, kids, just by simple facts. First of all, Ashkenazi Jews have all of the diseases that come with taking too many hormones. So you got that, right? Jews all run Hollywood. Jews are all the bankers and the doctors. I remember I worked in the garment business many years ago in New York, and I would hang around Jewish people, so I'd hear these things. I mean, a Jewish mother's dream is to have her daughter marry a banker, lawyer, or a doctor. Well, who is at the head of all those groups? Well, <laughs> Jews, right? <laughs> what have I been saying? They put their own in charge of all these things, which brought me back to the bloodline thing. Because I've been talking about how I thought that 13 bloodline deal was all just a fake deal. Well, here's what I think it maybe is. We have Wikipedia that makes sense that they use to database all these lies, right? So that way you can kind of keep track of your lies on a global thing. Because in the 90s, they did the same thing with the medical records and stuff. What they did in the 90s, if I could find the file, I'd tell you officially, but just to hear me out. What they did was everybody around the world, in the medical world, joined together electronically. And so that's why when people say crazy things like, well, are you crazy enough to think that every doctor in the world would be conspiring? Well, <laughs> yeah, they are conspiring because I have the data. But anyway, so, uh, yeah, so they keep these loops within themselves. So how else would they keep track of themselves, okay? Well, one way to be, because this is all staged, right? So let's say we have the actors being the royal people. They may be the people at the top of the elite chain, right? So that helps them keep track of all of the people within that elite cycle. You know, all their cousins, the bloodline, the people they call the bloodline people. So that could kind of, in a neat way, keep track of them through their own genealogy, right? Because I've questioned this, like, how could they actually say their kids were part of the bloodline, if somebody else had their kids, right? But anyways, that aside, so here's the deal. They put out this thing as far as their bloodline. And people who do this genealogy stuff will always say, well, I did a search on the person who runs, let's say, Heinz Ketchup, okay? And they'll say, well, they trace back genealogy to this, this royal family up here at the top. 
Well, they just assigned these categories. Maybe the top categories of the elites are the royals. So you see how it could work? And then they have the category who are the politicians. And all these people seem to fan out of the royal thing being at the top from a genealogy standpoint. So all of those things about them being royal, well, it leads to their attitude with being the chosen ones, right? So, yeah. So probably this bloodline thing is just to categorize for themselves and at the same time trick us into thinking that's even real. Because remember, they're all actors, okay? It is just the way they've laid out the character selection, okay? Probably the ones who looked a tiny bit better got sent to Hollywood, and the really ugly ones became politicians. <laughs> so, it doesn't have to be complicated. And what they always do, like the case of the Habsburg Jaws, what they always do is throw out something really crazy and complicated. And beneath it all, it's not that complicated, right? Because... First of all, the Jews all run Hollywood. That is what I'm getting to hopefully next, is all of the mind manipulation that came out of the theatrical aspects of all of this, right? And then the other part of that drama are the politicians, the people in the court system. See how each little package kind of can work on its own? So yeah, and then, <clears throat> so if we see large clusters of Jews running these huge organizations, it doesn't take a genius level thinking to kind of figure out, well, okay, here, all the elites at the top are, happen to all be Ashkenazi Jews. They happen to all be transgender to get into that very top position. And, you know, <clears throat> then I was thinking about how the, um, for example, the structure I was talking before about, you know, Elon Musk, doesn't own all that money. That all goes to the top of the corporate structure, whoever those people are, at the top of the City of London deal, right? So, for example, Jeff Bezos does not have all that money from Amazon. Think about it. Amazon makes the money, and Amazon was allowed to go for years without even showing a profit. A lot of their money comes from government contracts to spy on us, like CIA contracts. <laughs> and think about this. Amazon is the best place to tabulate more information about us. Through that one move with Amazon and getting so big, it wiped out any small business in the, in the field, right? And also, it got a lot of small businesses to sell their goods via Amazon, right? Well... I had to spend a few years selling on eBay before I got handicapped to do this work. Well, I know for a fact Amazon for small businesses is set up as a machine to literally screw people, okay? <laughs> because you think that shipping is free? No, no, no. People, people, those small businesses are paying for it. They're just putting fancy logos on their packages now saying you're supporting small businesses. So all those returns... Easy for Amazon to say no problem because that comes out of the pocket of that small business. So so where does all this money go? Well, I would have to argue. I mean, sure, Bezos and that slut girlfriend of his, Sanchez, or whatever his name is, <laughs> um, certainly they get handed a lot of candy and toys, right? But remember, it's all fake money, right? <laughs> That's the part that I want you to really think about. What we traded off to do things for these cheap gypsy Jews, okay? Um, so yeah, so what else is there about Amazon that's concerning here? Well, what kind of things has Amazon headed up? Well, I don't know. Little things I've talked about for years now, those ring doorbells, ring, ring. 
<laughs> all of those are hooked up to the police stations. Well, that was a pretty easy thing to do. All they had to do was stage a few news events with packages missing off of greedy American porches. <laughs> and everybody agreed to have the cops be part of the loop. So those ring doorbells are being fed to the police departments. And all that time, they were focusing on telling people that how bad China was, right? <laughs> so we really, folks, China is in a better part of the matrix from that movie. I never saw the movie, but here's how I vision it. We're in a cheap Jew-run country that our version of the matrix is one that people actually fund themselves, okay? In this country, we pay, we pay the highest amount for medical supplies to kill ourselves with. Um, we go online to Amazon and buy ring doorbells <laughs> to spy on ourselves. <laughs> Hello, let's talk about Alexa. <laughs> In order to get up and not have to walk across a room, we prefer to have device. I'm talking we, not me personally. <laughs> we prefer to have devices so we can shout across a room versus having to type three letters. Yeah, uh, yeah. And then people will say things like um, incredible things like, well, you know, it really doesn't matter to me because I'm not up to something. <laughs> See how that slippery soap starts? So, and, you know, the other thing I was thinking, too, is that, you know, we have all these movies about how the mob, the mafia, right? Well, just think about how the government works in comparison to the mafia, right? It really is robbing the poor to benefit the most wealthy. And in all those mobster movies I used to watch, because I did like them, you know, they, they had some pretty good ones out, right? Um, in all those ones, they always painted a side of these mobsters that they would also hold, like, charity events and stuff. <laughs> These people do the same thing. And now we know for a fact that those charity events are really to scam more money, right? Or a lot of use charity events to get paid for diseases that they've created themselves using hormones, right? Like, get us to feel sorry about diabetes and stuff. Would really, they got it because of what they did. So, anyways, a couple of other things here. When you hear this show about the smallpox, you'll probably run across a couple of theories. Uh, one theory is that the native Indians were given smallpox because this, the infected smallpox was put on blankets that they got them to take. Well, you know, remember, they wrote the, they wrote the history, right? So I'm not sure I believe the um, blankets because there's this old African saying that says, until the lion learns how to write every story, excuse me, until the lion learns how to write, every story will glorify the hunter. So yeah, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily believe the blanket deal, but what I do believe was that it was bioengineered, okay? Because you think, oh, that's crazy, that was back then. Who could be given a smallpox now? Well, a lot of things have come up. For example, and I'm not gonna go into it right now in great detail, um, we have smart boxes in this country. If they wanted to administer, let's say, smallpox to us, okay? I'm, this is just a wild example. I'm not even thinking it's going to happen with smallpox, but just a wild example. Let's say, let's say that it was true that back then they used blankets to get all the Indians to get smallpox, right? Conceivable, right? Because what I uncovered, when I, I was just going to take a look at one question and end up in this huge deal about smallpox, measles, and why are so many indigenous populations wiped out by smallpox and measles? So I thought, well, that was then, right? Whether they use blankets or what, it doesn't matter. Because I've explained that they're, they're using old technology that we used to have access to, right? Because magic has a lot of different assets. For example, I think now 
the reason they made such a big deal out of those Salem witch trials was because we all inherently have a lot of those skills, okay? Different subject, different time, but they've had a directed effort to keep us from thinking that we could also do these things, right? Magic doesn't just work one way, okay? But in where we are right now, it's working from their way, and it's, it's, it's become an evil, evil impact in this, right? So let's look at what we have now, because there's been comments made as far as the symptoms for COVID going on now, is um, smart boxes, radiation emissions, right? You think, oh, that's the craziest thing you've ever heard. Well, think about it, okay? We had a big push to put smart boxes on all of our homes in this country, right? Well, radiation causes a lot of issues. So a lot of these symptoms that we're seeing in these things could possibly be from radiation, right? Radiation coming from those smart boxes. Because if you've paid attention for years, I've been saying I thought the effort to push this 5G thing was to really hide what was really going on with smart boxes. And I recently took another look, but it's too detailed and I'm kind of tired right now. But here's the deal. Think about it this way, okay? So everybody has smart boxes, right? So let's say they want to zap certain parts of the population with something. They want to give the people all in Ohio, they want to give them all COVID, right? Well, if it's coming through a process through radiation, through smart boxes, that'd be, <clears throat> that would be fairly straightforward to transmit. So always think of these simple, right? So if you're going to infect a population, smart boxes, <clears throat> you know, smart boxes are attached to rich homes and poor homes, right? So pretty easy to go after poor neighborhoods and say, we had a major outbreak in Mississippi this week. See how that could happen. But anyway, just always be thinking, if they're telling you something crazy about something like all that fury over 5G, what on earth is it covering up? Okay. So anyway, so yeah, I could really do things. So I'd like to close with this. It's a um, Native American um, saying, only when the last tree has been cut down, the last fish has been caught, and the last stream poisoned, will we realize we cannot eat money. The new questions stem from taped remarks of Biden during an April campaign appearance in New Hampshire. I went to law school on a full academic scholarship, the only one in my, in my class uh, to have a full academic scholarship. Went back to law school and in fact ended up in the top half of my class. I was the outstanding student in the political science department at the end of my year. I graduated with three degrees from undergraduate school and 165 credits, only needed 123 credits. Biden now concedes he did not graduate in the top half of his law school class that he does not have three degrees from college, and that he was not named outstanding political science student in college. Newsweek says Biden actually went to school on a half scholarship, ended up near the bottom of his class, and won only one degree, not three. Joe Biden ranked 76th in a class of 85 at the University of Syracuse Law School. I mean, this guy comes off this whole thing as a flyweight. Now Biden says Newsweek is right. His memory had failed him.
The International Monetary Fund and the World Bank have been founded, just like the United Nations after World War II. Why? Mainly because after the war, everyone wanted peace. However, peace on an empty stomach is hard to maintain. So these two institutions were meant to help the economic stability of the world. Both of them are basically banks, but instead of being started by individuals, like regular banks, they've been started by countries. Most of the world's countries are members of the two institutions, but of course, the richest countries are those who handled most of the financing, and ultimately, those who have the greatest influence. The IMF and the World Bank were designed to complement each other. The IMF's main goal is helping countries which are currently in trouble, and who cannot get money by other means. Perhaps their economy collapsed, perhaps their currency is in danger. The IMF, in these cases, is kind of like a lender of last resort, who you go to when nobody else is willing to give you money. The World Bank, in comparison, has a more long-term approach. Its main goals revolve around the eradication of poverty, and it funds specific projects which help them reach these goals, especially in poor countries. Unfortunately, the reputation of these institutions has been dwindling, mainly due to practices such as lending to corrupt governments, or even dictators, and imposing ineffective austerity measures to get their money back. If run properly, however, they definitely could help make the world a better place. Okay, hopefully that clip explained a little bit about the difference between the World Bank and the IMF. Sound kind of like the same to me, and they're both headquartered in Washington, D.C. Almost kind of like, almost kind of like kind of a plan, isn't it? couple things about the World Bank that weren't included in that little clip. I have then extensively talked about the United Nations. The UN, to me, is in fact the New World Order. Their entire structure has everything from how they rule maritime laws, how they rule this, how they rule that. And uh, yeah, so the United Nations is in fact the New World Order. And go look for yourself. So what's what, what's going on with the uh, World Bank? I didn't know much about these people. What's their slogans? Well, on their Twitter page, their slogan is changing lives. Yeah, I would say you can change lives for the better or the worse. Right, kids? Um, one other slogan, results that change lives. Okay. And another main slogan they seem to be featuring is in poverty. We're in a dual world, so what does that say to you? I know what it says to me. It says here, the official World Bank, our mission is to end extreme poverty and promote this shared prosperity idea, okay? So anyway, so a couple of things I noticed that was interesting about the World Bank was that um, there's this guy named Harry Dexter White. And you know how they code everything. Is it because it's for the white people? I don't know. But it was founded, these two groups, by Harry Dexter White and John Maynard Keynes. They're considered the founding fathers of both the World Bank and the International Money Monetary Fund, the IMF. The World Bank was created at the 1944 Bretton Woods Conference along with the IMF. The president of the World Bank is traditionally an American. What does that start to tell you? He who rules the money rules the world, right? The World Bank and the IMF both, interestingly enough, are located in Washington, D.C. So, yeah, I think they clearly work together. And 
So who was the structure in the beginning of the World Bank? Well, the first president um, was from the United States, a person named Eugene Meyer from 1946, I guess just that year to 1946. Who was this person? We're looking at the profile of who are running things, right? Who was the first person? <clears throat> well, this Eugene person was a newspaper publisher and chairman of the Federal Reserve. You start to see some patterns here. Newspaper publisher. What do we see in these old movies? Well, the newspaper guys are always there at the scene of the crime with the cops. You start to see how they all start to work together, right? Then we have the next one was a guy named John, or woman, McCloy. 1947 to 1949. That person, a lawyer in U.S. Assistant Secretary of War. <laughs> okay, I'm just going to go through a few of them here that seem interesting because whoever these founders were would have set the structure going, right? Another person, Eugene R. Black, 1949 to 1963. A bank executive with Chase and executive director of the World Bank. Okay, let me see. <clears throat> then there were a few people who were not from the United States, and let me scroll down and tell you who they were, but predominantly all United States people running the World Bank, okay? Uh, for some reason, in 1988 to 1990, there were two. One was, well, this Stanley Fisher. It looks like Stanley Fisher was a U.S. and Israeli citizen. And then again in 1993 to 1996, somebody else from Israel, Michael Bruno, was in charge. Then we had 2000 to 2003, Nicholas Stern from the UK. And then we had a person from France, 2003. We had somebody from China in 2008, somebody from India, 2012, somebody from the United States back again. So 2000. 18 to president back in the hands of the United States. So yeah, that's pretty interesting. You can kind of see now, it's not like people from, oh, I don't know, some other countries were ever in charge of this thing. Seems like the United States has their hands pretty well in there, right? Couldn't be because of the structure of how this country was founded, could it? <laughs> Nothing is what it appears. Evil has to come packaged as help. And if the United States isn't my best example of evil coming packages help, well, I don't know what to tell you. It's a big one. Okay, because I've done so many shows in the past about the United Nations, um, there's a few things here that I don't recall having included in that, because there were a few things before they cooked up the United Nations. So let me just slip that into here. Okay, the first international organizations were created to enable countries to cooperate on specific matters. The International Telegraph Union was founded in 1868, and the Universal Postal Union was established in 1874. 
Both are now specialized agencies of the United Nations. Like I said before, they have every agency under this United Nations thing. In 1899, the Hague Convention established the Permanent Court of Arbitration, an intergovernmental organization which began work in 1902. Okay. The predecessor to the United Nations is called the League, League of Nations. It was conceived after World War I and established in 1919 under the Treaty of Versailles. This, the, the League of Nations was to promote international cooperation and to achieve peace and security. The main constitutional origins of the League were the Assembly, the Council, and the Permanent Secretariat. The Permanent Council of International Justice was provided for by the Covenant and established by the Council and Assembly. The International Labor Organization, which is also now a UN specialized agency, was created under the Treaty of Versailles as an affiliate agency of the League. In addition, there were several auxiliary agencies and commissions. So this is where they started cooking this stuff up, right? So now we have a date. This first place was that International Telegraph Union, founded 1868. Funny how we keep roaming around the mid-1800s, right? Okay, wait a second. I skipped too far here. Okay. The... Okay, the first, okay, um, they started with all of this stuff. Wait a second, I lost my track here for a second. Okay. The genesis of the United Nations is a series of conferences and declarations made by the Allies of World War II. So, after World War II, and... Eleanor Roosevelt was highly involved in this thing. This um, Eleanor Roosevelt kind of led the charge to get the United Nations going. The United Nations is a, well, go look for yourself, okay? A lot of evil, well, all the evils coming out of the United Nations, okay? Planned Parenthood, the New Age deal, all those people came out of the United Nations deal. Okay, they had this thing called the London Declaration. On June the 12th, 1941, representatives of the United Kingdom, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, the Union of South Africa, and the exiled governments of Belgium, Czechoslovakia, Greece, Luxembourg, Netherlands, Norway, Poland, and Yugoslavia as well as representative of General de Gaulle of France, they all met in London. <clears throat> and there's where they said they signed the Declaration of St. James Palace, okay? So that's, that was expressing a vision of a post-war post world order. There were words, okay? This was the first step that led up to the funding of the United Nations. So they all met in 1941, they had this swell meeting, and they cooked all this stuff up. They had this other thing called the Atlantic Charter. The Atlantic Conference followed on the 9th to 12th of August, 1941. American President Franklin D. Roosevelt and British Prime Minister Winston Churchill 
laid out this vision for a more detailed form in the Atlantic Charter. All the sub subsequent meetings of the Inter-Allied Council in London on 24 September 1914, excuse me, 1941, excuse me, the eight governments in exile of countries under Axis occupation, that has just lost me. Let me see here. Of course, the eight governments in exile countries under Axis occupation, together with the Soviet Union and representatives of the free French forces, unanimously adopted adherence to the common principles of policy set forth by Britain and the United States. Did you hear that there, kids? Who put these principles forward? Well, Britain and the United States. Seems it's pretty, uh, pretty tight little crew, those two, right? Britain and the United States. The United States is nothing but a mouthpiece for Britain. <laughs> Why do you think we all speak English here? They couldn't assign us some other language because it might get confusing, right? If they gave us Swahili or um, some form of Chinese language, the people of Britain might not be able to snap that whip as readily, right? Okay, declarations by the United States, United Kingdom. Yeah, they're full of declarations, aren't they? And what you will always find is they declare things, and then they are the ones who break the laws. And that's about it for that little intersection here. We'll continue on. By the early 19th century, the U.S. was rapidly growing, both in size and power. Land-hungry and ambitious, the new country was also drastically changing its policies towards the Indian nations. And nowhere was this more evident than in the treaties. The United States' primary interest in treaty-making was to acquire Indian land. And so the treaties were used for that purpose, especially as the United States found itself in a position to pretty much dictate the terms of the treaty. And so the treaties morphed from this friendship and reciprocity sort of relationship into a very one-sided thing. There's almost a mythology about this that somehow when the pilgrims arrived, they were dragging land behind them. <laughs> there was no land brought here. The land here was native nations. And this is what the United States needed. It's what it wanted. They wanted all of it. They wanted everything. The greed came in. Well, we have a little tract here now. Now we need a little more. And, well, we need to go make another treaty. We didn't understand that eventually those treaty-making processes ended up to the acquisition of all of our ancestral homeland. That land was a part of us. That land helped us be. That land was who we were and who we are. The command of removal came unexpectedly upon most of us. There was a time that we noticed several overloaded wagons were passing our home yet we did not grasp the meaning. Then one day, wagons stopped. We were to be taken away and leave our homes, never to return.
To get what they wanted, U.S. officials brokered treaties through any means available. Their tactics were so corrupt that the once trusted treaties became quickly known as bad paper. There were people at these treaty negotiations who would do anything to get an agreement on the table. And so there was very routinely bribery, individual payments made to tribal leaders, uh, alcohol would be used to put people in, a, in an agreeable frame of mind, and even coercion to say to people, you must sign this agreement or else. Every means of trickery and fraud was employed against Native nations. The United States would appoint a false leadership, people who had no right to speak for the tribe, and say, you're the leader of this tribe, sign this paper giving away all your land. As the century progressed, the treaties became more and more lopsided, a far cry from the parallel paths of the Gaswenta. Despite appeals from the Indian nations, the U.S. kept on its new trajectory, rationalizing its aggressive actions along the way. They have neither the intelligence, the industry, the moral habits, nor the desire of improvement. The tribes of Indians inhabiting this country were fierce savages. To leave them in possession of their country was to leave the country a wilderness. It's important in the great American mythology to describe the Americas as wilderness. Because if it's wilderness, then there's really nobody to dispossess. It was okay to come here and prosper and conveniently forget that there were already people and civilizations in place. At first we had something to eat, but that gave out and we were starving. We came to a slippery elm tree and ate the bark of that. Lots took sick and died. As Americans successfully pushed the bounds of the frontier, they not only believed that they were destined to take over the land and prosper, they believed that God was the one who put them there to do it. They believed that it was God's will, that the United States should be a continental nation, stretching from the Atlantic to the Pacific. As each wave of immigration would come, they'd move into an area. The United States would then make some sort of arrangement with the tribe to get that land from them. And then more would come, and they'd advance the frontier even further. The power of manifest destiny, of expansion, of inevitability, of God's providence helped to rally people around not only the idea of Americans as entitled to North America, but rallied them around the idea that Indian people were barriers to civilization and barriers to progress. No matter how many treaties were signed or how much land they gave to the United States, the Indian was still in the way. This was known as the Indian problem. This so-called problem continued despite a decades-old policy to force Indians to swap their land east of the Mississippi for land west of it. The Indians would then move to those western parts and away from the Americans. This plan was simply called removal. The Removal Act was the centerpiece of Andrew Jackson's political agenda and it was very controversial at the time. It was very widely debated. There was lots of discussion across the country and very many prominent people spoke up against it. Will the American government steal? 
Will it lie? Will it kill? I have no desire to see the poor remnants of a once powerful people. The removal bill represents oppression with a vengeance. The removal process, it was, all right, you've made these treaties. Now, you can have one of two things. You can keep your sovereignty, but you can't keep your land. And if you keep your land, then you have to assimilate and no longer be Indian. You will have sovereignty or you have your land. You can't have both. Across the United States, the Removal Act divided the country. But across the Indian nations, reaction was unanimous. We are surrounded by white people, and there are encroachments made. What assurances have we that similar ones will not be made on us should we remove to the Mississippi? Look here, Father. Our lands belong to us. We shall keep them. We do not wish to talk to you anymore. We had already been fighting to keep that land. And sure enough, when the government was coming in there to take us out of that land, we fought even more. But at some point, you have to realize that this fighting is all going to be about death. And death is coming. Then I need to be protecting my family. And I want my children to survive. So we have to endure this removal. Many of the tribes did choose to accept removal as a means of maintaining the tribal nation. What choice was there? After decades of engagement, they could no longer resist. And so they gave up their lands, they gave up their homes, they gave up their fields and forests, they gave up literally their way of life in order to be able to stay together and be what they were. We are poor, but we are free. No white man controls our footsteps. Some try to assimilate to avoid removal. Some were removed completely. But in the end, every nation met the same fate. Every nation had to give up land. Brothers, you cannot remain where you are now. You have but one remedy within your reach, and that is to remove to the West. May the Great Spirit teach you how to choose. The loss of land was devastating, and so was the loss of lives. The most famous of these incidents was the Cherokee Nation's Trail of Tears, but there were numerous other trails just as violent and just as crushing. Everyone had to walk. My baby brother, Joel, was four years old. I was just eight, but I took my turn at carrying him because he could not walk much. I would get so tired, I'd think I was going to die, but I would hang on to him. I was so afraid they would kill him. I saw them kill babies who were too big to be carried and would give out. That really was a road of death. People were falling on the side of the road or being shot or being murdered on the road and being left there. The removal process was done in a way that was not efficient in making people survive. 
Of the millions of Indian people that lived before the first colonists arrived, by the end of the 19th century, only 250,000 remained. The removal of a tribe was certain to destroy all of the things they knew about taking care of themselves, all of their medicines, all of their foods. Everything about them had to change in order to survive. It can only be understood as an act of destruction. When you move a people from one place to another, when you displace people, when you wrench people from their homelands, wasn't that genocide? We don't make the case that there was genocide. We know there was, yet here we are. When we were forced to leave our land, we took the fires with us. We took the embers along. Then when we got to Oklahoma, we rekindled the old fire. Old home or new home, it is the same fire. Okay, let's talk about how this boarding school business of Indian children got started in this country, okay? So I'm going to be going through the data that I've looked at, and let me just give you some background here. And also, you might want to jot down some of these keywords, because it's all in the keywords. Like, for example, if you type into that old machine, I don't know, things like Indian schools and things like that, the words I'll be using, you'll come up with a lot more information on your own because here's the deal. A lot of these things are just now being discovered. Um, I know Canada was uncovering bones and cemeteries, unmarked graves of indigenous people in Canada. As a matter of fact, I had an interview set up for somebody in Canada. Well, it turns out they were kind of a controlled opposition, so but they blew off the interview, which was kind of a big clue. But anyway, so um, anyway, so some of the things are going on, and I'll talk about one of them in my closing comments. One of them is just being discovered, like oh, I don't know, like maybe an hour from where I am right now in Nebraska, a pretty significant site. And I know for a fact it's not a lie there, right? So you have to look at what they're telling us and what we can kind of put together for ourselves because this location is right up the road. They're just starting to uncover these graves. So Canada, kind of in simplistic terms, kind of started kicking this off a few years ago by uncovering these unmarked graves. Um, and you can follow the patterns here. Unmarked graves ended up in where when we're talking about Ireland with those children and those homes there. Unmarked graves are a pretty big part, right? So yeah, so um, how it got started was these homes was from 1810 to 1917, the U.S. federal government subsidized mission and boarding schools, okay? By 1885, 106 Indian schools had been established many of them on abandoned military installations. They also used military personnel and 
they had Indian prisoners. Boarding schools were seen as a means for the government to achieve assimilation of Native Americans into mainstream American culture. Assimilation efforts included forcibly removing Native Americans from their families, converting them to Christianity, preventing them from learning or practicing indigenous culture and customs, and living in a strict military fashion. So how this gets started? Well, this is the story according to them, right? Okay, here we go. After the Indian Wars, well, really, the wars were, I would conclude that they were massacres, right? And their, you know, history is rewriting them as wars. But, you know, I'm just a little suspicious. So, okay, so after the Indian Wars, this Lieutenant Richard Henry Pratt, and that would be P-R-A-T-T, -T, he was assigned to supervise Native prisoners of war at the... Um, Fort Marion, okay, and Fort Marion is located in St. Augustine, Florida. Okay, so here we got this guy doing the, um, he's assigned to this these prisoners there, okay, in Fort Marion. And um, they sent, the army sent 72, um, always 72, right, 72 warriors from the Cheyenne, Kiowa, Kamachi, and Cato nations, they sent them to exile, okay, in Fort St. Augustine, Florida. And this guy, Lieutenant Richard Henry Pratt, was assigned this group of people, okay. Pratt began to work with them on education in European American culture, essentially a kind of immersion. Immersion means when you just go head first into something, right? If you were to do like, let's say you wanted to learn Chinese, part of China, immersion into that language would be, oh, I don't know, move to Hong Kong and don't have any English speaking friends, right? Just, uh, you, there's different levels, of course, of immersion, right? So anyway, so, so while he required changes, what he did was he first had the men cut their hair, which was very, uh, a huge, huge deal in the native population and wear common uniforms rather than their traditional clothes. He also granted them increased autonomy and the ability to govern themselves within the prison. Sounds to me like dangle the carrot, right? Hey, come over here, let me shave your head. Oh, by the way, we'll start to feed you better, right? So that is how it appears to me. And his, um, he said this in his speech, um, he was pleased by his success. He was said to have supported the motto, and it was, kill the Indian, save the man. He said this, that Pratt said this in his speech in 1892. A great general has said that a good, the only good Indian is a dead one. In a sense, I agree, not I, just to be very clear here, I'm talking I, meaning Pratt. In a sense, I agree with the sentiment but only in this, that all the Indian there is in the race should be dead. What do you say? That all, that all the Indian there is in the race should be dead. So I guess he meant just kill them all, right? 
Pratt provided for some of the younger men to pursue more education at the Hampton Institute, a historically black college founded in 1868 for the education of freedmen by biracial representatives of the American Missionary Association soon after the Civil War. So yeah, a turning point here. They were, I guess, cooked this up and then had to put people someplace, right? So they already had some facilities for this other business. Just like they, you know, reused all of those um, early mental institutions, right? Those became, a lot of them became tourist attractions afterwards. Always reusing things, right? Throwing a bunch of rocks on the ground and then calling it a tourist attraction. Everything to rake in that cash, boy. Okay. Um, so Hampton in, okay, who was Hampton? Oh, the Hampton Institute. Okay, that was a historically black college, okay, that was founded in, 1868, okay. Hampton, in 1875, developed a program for Native American students. So yeah, they founded 1868, 1875, they come up with this program. Pratt continued to assimilate, continued the assimilation model in developing the Carlisle Indian Industrial School. So our guy Pratt here was brought in around the Civil War time to get these um, things to do with the black population assimilated, okay? And so that is where he came up with uh, this idea. So the, the very first one, and a key word here, is Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. What that means is it's in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, and it's the home of the first... Indian Industrial School, okay, it's called the Carlisle Indian Industrial School. And Pratt felt at the time that within one generation, Native children could be integrated into Euro-American culture. With this perspective, he proposed an expensive experiment to the federal government. Pratt wanted the government to fund a school that would require Native children to move away from their homes to attend a school far away. The Carlisle Indian School, which became the template for over 300 schools across the United States, opened in 1879. Carlisle Barracks, an abandoned Pennsylvania military base, was used for the school. It became the first school that was not on a reservation, okay? The Carlisle curriculum was heavily based on the culture and society of rural America. The classes included vocational training for boys and domestic science for girls. Students worked to carry out chores that helped sustain the farm and food production for the self-supporting. Here again, the people who are the captive ones, the children here, are the ones who are funding the operation to enslave them. It's kind of like the same deal going on now, right? They got people to, they got these poor kids and stuff, and just like they did the mental people to do all these chores and, you know, oh, I don't know, you know, sell produce and you know, to pay for the entire operation on the backs of the slaves. Well, what do they do now? Well, people pay for pills. They pay for shots that are a form of eugenics, right? So 
it's interesting how complacent we have become along the way that we actually pay and participate in our own eugenics, in our very own eugenics. So um, Carlisle and its curriculum became the model for the Bureau of Indian Affairs. That was a BIA. By 1902, this is the time when those trains were rolling across America, right? So by 1902, we have another sh horror show going on. Um, the Bureau of Indian Affairs authorized 25 federally funded off-reservation schools in 15 states and territories with a total enrollment of over 6,000 students. And keep in mind, I'm not saying any of these figures are correct, okay, because much of this has been not even really jotted down. And what was jotted down, like the census records, seemed to have been lost to fires, right? So um, what happened um, was federal legislation then required Native American children to be educated according to Anglo-American standards. See how they always set up these laws, these rules, these management techniques for people, right? Parents had to authorize their children's attendance at boarding schools, and if they refused, officials could use coercion to gain a quota of students from any given reservation. So the parents were given the choice, but well, if they didn't go along, there were ways that they could get them from wherever they wanted, right? Boarding schools were also established on reservations where they were often operated by religious missions or institutes, which were generally independent of the local diocese in the case of Catholic orders. So supposedly the Catholics were kind of on their own, which does not make any sense, but that's how it works, right? Oh, not, not on us, different group, different group. Um, because of the distances, this is where the catch is, right? What they did here was they put these schools, kind of like those mental institutions I've been talking about, in remote locations. Well, they only had horses and buggies at that stage, right? Remote locations made it extraordinarily impossible for any parents to visit any of these children, right? So they set up these schools in remote locations and they basically trick people by saying that they were doing this to help these children, right? Because they had to learn. They had to teach them these things. And this was just all to help the little tots, right? Get them off to these schools where they out of the influence of their parents. Because after all, if they didn't immerse them into the total culture of the white group, right? Here we go, immersions, right? So what they did was they immersed these children 100% into a location away from family and friends and it was sink or swim. It was like, okay, now you got a whole new language, right? Stop speaking that Indian language. So yeah, all these kids come into these facilities. They're also, remember, speaking other languages. They're not speaking English when they arrive at these places. So the whole idea is immediately strip them of their heritage and the poor kids arrive not even knowing what language there's being spoken to, okay? So in the late 19th and 20th century, when students arrived at boarding schools, their lives altered dramatically. 
They were given short haircuts, which was a source of shame for the boys of many tribes. They con- the boys of many tribes considered long hair part of their maturing identity. They were required to wear uniforms and to take English names for use at the school. Sometimes the names were based on their own. Other times they were assigned at random. The children were not allowed to speak their own languages, even between each other. They were required to attend church services and were often baptized as Christians. As was typical at the time, discipline discipline was stiff in many schools. It often included assignment of extra chores for punishment, solitary confinement, and corporal punishment, including beatings by teachers using sticks, rulers, and bells. And it is far worse than that, but I think we all kind of get the picture here, right? So how did they legally do all this stuff, okay? Well, a lot of stuff happens around 1776 for some suspicious reason, right? So this, I'm going to go over what I looked at as far as some of the legal things. They always have to come up with these things legal. That is essentially how they signal things, right? And always after they signal these things, there's always some sneaky deal on the back end, which kind of nullifies it, right, that they can fall back on. And usually that sneaky deal can also be in how they word these things. And if you look just simply at the history of the Indians in this country, how many treaties did they have that time and time again, the psychopaths here continue to break. So their word is not exactly what one would uh, consider to be honest and truthful, right? And that's why they set up this legal system, I believe, to make it appear that it's going to be honest and truthful. But the legal system to me is just their version of signaling what they're really up to, right? Because in 1776, um, the Continental Congress authorized the Indian commissioners to engage ministers as teachers to work with Indians. This movement increased after the War of 1812, cause and effect, right? In 1819, Congress appropriated $10,000 to hire teachers and maintain schools. These resources were allocated to the missionary church schools because the government had no other mechanism to educate the Indian population. Kind of like their um, gig economy, right? They brought in uh, churches as their gig workers to get these Indians educated. In 1890, so anyway, so um, 1887, funding for more boarding schools. They passed the Compulsory Indian Education Act, 1887, okay? 1891, a compulsory attendance law enabled federal officers to forcibly take Native American children from their homes and reservations, 1891. The American government believed they were rescuing these children from a world of poverty and depression and teaching them life skills. Evil coming packaged as hell. So this person uh, from some university of central Oklahoma, she wrote this paper called Cheaper Than Bullets, I found. And it was interesting because it said... um, Many parents had no choice but to send their kids. 
when Congress authorized the commissioner when Congress authorized the Commissioner of Indian Affairs to withhold rations, clothing, and annuities of these families that refused to send students. So they came with authorization for them to withhold the food they would need to feed the, themselves and their family, okay? Pretty big carrot and stick, if you ask me. Some agents even used reservation police to virtually kidnap children but experienced difficulties when the native police officers would resign out of disgust or when parents taught their kids a special hide-and-seek game. Sometimes resistant fathers found themselves locked up for refusal. In 1895, 19 men of the Hopi Nation were imprisoned, were imprisoned to Alcatraz because they refused to send their children to boarding school. Now keep in mind, all of these dates and all of these events, I'm not saying that they are all correct, right? Because history gets rewritten by the captors. So this is the story because along the way, a lot of people, just kind of like how they um, got people in these generations to go along with their evil schemes, a lot of people allowed themselves to be bought off along the way. Okay, there was a lot of... Uh, a lot of things going on within these tribes and these government people, I would suspect, right? A lot of bribery and things like that. So you start to pollute people's um, decisions when you find people that are very poor, dangle money and goods in front of them, and you can, you know, they can develop kind of monsters, right? Well, look, look at it right now. Look at the monsters they have created with social media. Uh, by dangling money and stuff, they've gotten all these kids to invest in things thinking that could be them. So, yeah, they really do use these same patterns, okay? And so this thing about these parents being sent to Hopi Nation, well, maybe true, maybe not true. If they say that it happened, it could be to get the other parents in line, right? Like, if you don't go along with us, look what we did to these people over here. So, yeah, you have to look at things in, in many aspects. It's just not one thing. Just because I'm saying these men went to um, Alcatraz doesn't mean I'm agreeing that it's true. Okay, so between 1778 and 1871, the federal government signed 389 treaties with American Indian tribes. And here again, I have much more detailed analysis, you know, little documentaries over at the website. I'm just giving you the overview. Um, so what they did, basically, this is my view, that within these treaties, they came up with these clauses, okay, that the federal government would also, as part of these treaties, would provide education and other services in exchange from land. Kind of sounds kind of good on the surface, right? The last of these treaties, the Fort Laramie Treaty of 1868, established the Great Sioux Reservation. One particular article, there's always something buried somewhere, okay? And this is where this deal got buried to pull this stunt off, right? Okay, because there was one particular article, and I found it in the Fort Laramie Treaty, and it illustrates the attention the federal government paid to the civilizing nature of education, okay? And there was this one of their scholars had pointed this out. There was an article seven, okay? It said, 
in order to ensure the civilization of the Indians entering into this treaty, the necessity of education is admitted, especially of such of them as are or may be settled on such agricultural reservations, and they therefore pledge themselves to compel <clears throat> compel their children, male or female, between the ages of six and 16 years to attend school. So this clause right here in the middle of this treaty, of the, they did 389 treaties, and this is the clause that, in my view, gave them the outward ability to grab the children, right? <clears throat> now, you may have a different opinion, but this is how I read it. So it said, Article 7 was to, in order to ensure the civilization, because we're already, they're already in this language to me, stating that something is wrong with these people, right? <laughs> Don't you see this pattern with everything else? Like something is always wrong with us and we need them to straighten out. So here in this wording to me, it says, in order to ensure the civilization of the Indians entering into this treaty. So we've already kind of laid out here that there's obviously something wrong with these people, right? The Indians entering into this treaty, the necessity of education is admitted, I guess admitted into this treaty, especially of such of them as are or may be settled on said agriculture reservation. So that really means anybody we put on these reservations come under this clause, right? And they therefore pledge themselves to compel their children, male or female, between the ages of six and 16. Okay, so use of English language in the education of America in 1871, yeah, what they were pushing was to teach everybody English, right? Kind of like our, uh, oh, I don't know, maybe like the people in the UK, right? <laughs> so the push was um, to educate America into speaking English, and that started 1871. <clears throat> the U.S. government prohibited further treaties with Indian nations and also passed the Appropriations Act for Indian education requiring the establishment of day schools on reservations. So 1871, I guess they were done saying, we're not gonna be making any more fake treaties is how I read this, right? <clears throat> because they were making treaties like, I, I don't know, go look at the treaty documentation. The treaty thing could, could keep you busy for the next 100 years, okay? But anyways, what the treaty thing should show you is they made a lot of plans and they lied a lot, okay? So, um, and likely the Indian people were very good-hearted people, and they continued to get conned and tricked. Same way that happened to the rest of us, right? The rest of our generations of people, so. Okay, um, use of the education, <clears throat> 1871. Um, 1873, the Board of Indian Commissions argued in a School days were ineffective, and this is where it really got going, okay, 1873. What they did was they came into Congress, this Indian Commission, and they told Congress that to teach Indian children English, that their reasoning, which is really, uh, well, I don't want to keep using the word crazy, but what they did was they essentially said, oh, hey, wait a minute, um, they speak English um they, they said they want to teach English children, I mean, Indian children, they want to teach them English. And they said, hey, wait a minute. 
they spend 20 hours per day at home speaking their native language. So we really need to figure out a way to um, relocate them. Okay, just to help them out, right? <laughs> and we'll relocate them to some remote place that mom and dad can't get to. So, yeah. So what happened was the Senate and House Indian Affairs Committees, they joined in the criticism of day schools a year later. See, they, this is the frog in the water process, right? They got them to agree in these treaties that, hey, well, we're going to help you educate your children, right? So then they started these day schools, right? So then they came back and said, well, day schools really aren't working out because, well, we, we think we need to confine them, <clears throat> confine them in some place so we can teach them a little bit better, right? Because what had happened was the boarding school movement, which had began after the Civil War, and reformers, always those reformers, right? They turned their attention on the plight of Indian people and advocated for proper education and treatment so that Indians could become like other citizens. Always like being like somebody else, right? But here's, so the, the Carlisle Indian School was the first one to do that. Um, and government subsidies were available to participating families. Here again, handing out fake money they printed, right? Okay. Um, so, yeah, um, I don't know what more to say about this. Um, the boarding schools were going on through the first half of the 20th century, doubling by the 1960s. So these things did not slow down. Bureau of Indian Affairs operated 226 schools in 17 nations including on reservations and in remote geographical eras. Some 77 were boarding schools. Yeah, it is just the saddest, saddest case. Um, you know, they've done all these reports, okay. Um, activism kind of started from what I can tell around the mid-60s, and they did some Kennedy report, and we know what liars those people are, right? They did this National Study of American Indian Education, so that led to some passage of the Indian Self-Determination and Education Assistance Act of 1975. Lots happened around the 70s, right? This emphasized authorizing tribes to contract with federal agencies in order to take over management of programs such as education. So it looks like in 1975, this act authorized the tribes to take over educating, I guess, yeah, so we know how that probably worked out. So, so in 1978, Congress passed and the President signed the Indian Child Welfare Act, giving Native American parents the legal right to refuse their child's placement in a school. Damning evidence related to years of abuses of students in off-reservation boarding schools contributed to the enactment of the Indian Child Welfare Act. Congress approved this act after hearing testimony about life in Indian boarding schools. Yeah, 1978, and what were we saying, 18, some of these things got started? So almost a hundred years, they're now, oh, let's talk about some child welfare acts. Really? Okay, a hundred years. Okay, <clears throat> as a result of these changes, many large Indian boarding schools closed in the 1980s 
and early 1990s, not that long ago. Some located on reservations were taken over by tribes. By 2007, the number of American Indian children living in Indian boarding schools dormitories had declined to 9,500. This figure includes those on 45 on-reservation boarding schools. Anyway, so, um, okay, here's a number. <clears throat> From 1879 to the present day, it is estimated that hundreds of, okay, I hate when I go flying past it. Okay. Okay, 8,500. Um, well, they, they don't have any numbers. What they're saying is, this will give you an idea. These things were going on from 1879 until the first Welfare Act for Children was 1978. So 100 years after 1879, they kicked into gear with some Indian child welfare stuff, okay? And they these things are still going on to right now. So to ease the burden of them doing this eugenics part themselves, well, they probably had had enough tribal leaders bought off by this point, right? And I'm, I'm being very cynical, and I'm just thinking out loud here, okay? But, you know, it was probably a safe bet to turn these <clears throat> turn these places over to the local authorities because I would assume, okay, assume and think that by then the structure of the management or the people in charge of all these tribes, you know, like the tribal leaders themselves, I would have to kind of guess until I could look further, which, you know, I can make a pretty good guess here that most of the people at the top now running these things for the government and on behalf of the government and on behalf of their tribes would likely be polluted by this point, right? So it is really hard to tell, but I would say that this very much, in fact, is going on in likely the same brutal fashion that it always happened before. That would be my assumption out of this thing. A pretty horrific thing that went on and is still going on to this day right now in 2022. Okay, since genocide is a favorite act of psychopathic personalities, let's talk about the genocide of indigenous people, also called colonial genocide or settler genocide. It's the elimination of entire communities of indigenous people as part of colonialism. Genocide of the native population is especially likely in case of settler colonialism, with some scholars arguing that settler colonialism is inherently genocidal. <clears throat> well, let me cut to the chase here, okay? Um, what I'm looking at is with 
the indigenous people, meaning the Indians and the graves of children, I've been looking at um, the death rates of indigenous people and what's going on with the children. And so many of them seem to be listed as dying of things like, oh, I don't know, they wiped out the entire Indian population supposedly with smallpox. And then it seems I keep running into um, measles and smallpox, right? So what I'm going to be talking about in this section is I highlighted things that I had been looking at <clears throat> about why I would think it would be smallpox and um, measles as a form of genocide, right? It's a form of some sort of bias, but let me not jump ahead. Let me go through here. I'll read some excerpts here, okay? So the concept of genocide was formulated by this Raphael Lemkin, L-E-M-K-I-N, in the mid-20th century. The expansion of various European colonial powers, such as the British and Spanish empires, and the subsequent establishment of colonies on indigenous territories, frequently involved acts of genocidal violence against, against in, indigenous groups in the Americas, Australia, Africa, and Asia. According to Lemkin, colonization was in itself intrinsically genocidal. He saw this genocide as a two-stage process, the first being the destruction of the indigenous population's way of life. In the second stage, the newcomers impose their ways of life on the indigenous group. According to David Mayberry Lewis, imperial and colonial forms of genocide are enacted in two main ways, either through the deliberate clearing of territories of their original inhabitants in order to make them exploitable for purpose of resource extraction. So what they're saying is deliberate clearing of territories, okay, of the original inhabitants in order to make them more exploitable for purposes of resource extraction or colonial settlements, right? Two things, always about the resources and stealing land, it appears, right? So, um, let me see. Or through enlisting indigenous people as forced laborers in colonial or imperial projects of resource extraction. Yes, they make everybody slaves along the way, don't they? They just tricked us into thinking it's just certain people with darker skin. <clears throat> but it's part of their settling of things, right? And taking over. Such as forced laborers, um, the designation of specific events as genocidal is often controversial. Yes, I would say it would be controversial. Okay. Some scholars among them, Lemkin, have argued that cultural genocide, sometimes called ethnocide, should also be recognized. A people group may continue to exist, but it is prevented from perpetuating its group identity by prohibitions of its cultural and religious practices, practices which are the basis of its group identity. This may also be considered a form of genocide. Examples that can be considered this form of genocide include the treatment of, let me see here, in, okay, intrude the treatment of Tibetans, 
Tibetan, excuse me, Tibetans, Tibetans, Uyghurs, and the government of China, Native Americans by citizens of the United States, and First Nations people. So what group we're looking at here are the First Nations people. That's what the group of Native Americans is called in Canada. And that was the first group to start uncovering these grave sites. So yeah. Um, so what I found interesting, then I started reading these scholars' papers, right? Because they all hang out in these different places on the internet, right? So anyway, so I started thinking, gee, smallpox and measles. I keep reading about those in conjunction with, you know, these indigenous populations getting extinct or wiped out, right? And this says, uh, smallpox and measles have ravaged native populations worldwide for centuries. Millions of people have succumbed to smallpox or measles or suffered from their effects. Clinicians wonder how their pre predecessors confused measles with smallpox. Yes, I kept confusing. Why are they talking about measles here, smallpox there? So now they're saying they wonder why the people before them confused the two. Yes, they left a very confusing trail. Well, it could be because they're very similar bioengineered attacks, right? I mean, there's always a very simple answer here. So I would say one of my conclusions in this thing, and the reason I'm looking at it more carefully, is I think this is a method of operation for these people, and it appears to me it's been going on for centuries, right, according to them, that mass populations of people, oh, I don't know, they just all appear to me to have rather dark, dark skin, right, all colors of brown in their skin, and they seem to succumb to all these measles and smallpox outbreaks. So I would say this started to me to look more and more suspicious, right? So what do they say about measles and stuff? I tried to break the two of them apart because I was I, I kept getting confused between measles and um, smallpox, frankly. Um, I think measles, I, I was only given like <clears throat> two vaccines or so as a child, and I think measles was one of them because in the 50s it was all the roar, right? But then, of course, I don't know what other things I was given because, remember, all children, infants, are taken from their mothers immediately back into some back room somewhere, right? So you get the picture of always be suspicious of it all and never stop looking. So anyway, so measles is an endemic disease meaning it has been continually present in a community and many people have developed resistance yes because i think it is such a core thing kind of like this virus they're talking about now right it's something like some sort of cold virus or something that you know <laughs> is likely and remember i am no I, I don't understand. I, I haven't been to these people's schools. I'm just making a very um, random analysis of what struck me when I was going through this, this researching this. It strikes me that measles and smallpox are likely triggered from something that we all have within us, right? <clears throat> and there's some way to bioengineer an attack to, to trigger it. I mean, it likely, very likely, is as simple as that, okay? Because. I kept reading these populations and they continued to have dark skin, right? So, um, 
and I only went back so far. In 19, excuse me, in 1529, a measles outbreak in Cuba <clears throat> killed two-thirds of those indigenous people who had previously survived. Okay, let me start over here again. Because I was cra tracing back to when did the, the death rate of these two seem to really get going, right? Okay, in 1529, a measles outbreak in Cuba killed two-thirds of those indigenous people who had previously survived smallpox. Two years later, measles was responsible for the deaths of half of the population of Honduras and has ravaged Mexico, Central America, and the Inca civilization. Well, I don't know. I, I kept thinking, well, gee, what's, what's familiar about that group of people? Well, it looks to me like they all have a brown tint to their skin, right? Okay, be, between roughly 1855 and 2005, measles is estimated to have killed about 200 million people worldwide. So, not, not really a long time if you look at 1855 to 2005, right, with these numbers. And then here's another one. The 1846 measles outbreak in the Faroe Islands, that's F-A-R-O-E Islands, was unusual for being well studied. See, what they do sometimes is they do one big study and then, you know, then everybody can quote that study and then they can go on Twitter and then they're quoting, <laughs> excuse me, it, it, it creates this evolution of things that people can quote, right? And it becomes like this, this one big quote between all of their people, right? The analyst, <laughs> the scientist and stuff. Okay, let me get back here. Okay. So, <clears throat> the uh, we're at the 1846 measles outbreak in the Faroe Islands was unusual for being well studied. Measles had not been seen on the island for 60 years, so almost no residents had any acquired immunity. Now, you want to pay attention to this acquired immunity part of this deal, right? Because... I think it's because this this thing was just introduced into the population, right? You, you probably don't have to have acquired immunity. This could be like a trick of words, right? Like a little magic trick. Because, um, you know, that that's one way to say, whoops, they all got measles, right? Because they never saw it before. Well, what does seeing it before mean, right? <laughs> why, why aren't the rest of us getting it? So, <clears throat> to me... It appeared to me when I was going through this literature that it was kind of a trick of words, right? Um, so they keep saying that like the Native American Indians had no a previous immunity. That's why they got hit with smallpox and wiped out their population. These people, they're saying, oh, whoops, they had measles and they hadn't seen measles on the island in 60 years. Well, maybe because 60 years ago was the last time they did the cleansing using measles on this island, right? So there's there's ways to interpret this data that can be kind of productive, right? So, um, yeah. So they said that three-quarters of the residents on the Faroe Islands got sick and more than 1% to 2% died from it before the epidemic burned itself out. This person observed the outbreak and determined that measles was spread through direct contact of contagious people 
with people who had never had measles. Yes, never had measles could also mean they weren't around when this bioengineering was taking place, right? See, there's, there's a lot of ways you can kind of take a look at data here. So that's another thing that struck me, right? So, like, I may never have had the um, Chinese uh, yellow virus that's raging through... Um, this is just an example, okay? I may never have had the Chinese yellow fever that's now raging through Hong Kong Hong Kong, well, because maybe I wasn't visiting there during the period that it was being engineered, right? So there's ways to look at it. So, But here's another interesting deal. Measles killed 20% of Hawaii's population in the 1850s. In 1875, measles killed over 40,000 Fijians, approximately one-third of the population. In the 19th century, the disease killed more than half of the great Andamese population. Seven to eight million children were thought to have died from measles each year before the vaccine was introduced. What you can also do is you can create a pretty horrible disease, right? And then rush in with a cure, right? This is how you can also generate, you know, generations of people believing these things all exist. Because obviously my parents, you know, or the doctors would have said, well, yeah, because of these measles outbreaks here, uh, we better vaccinate every baby in the United States, right? So they can really twist a lot of things out of one incident. Um, this was another one. In 1914, a statistician for the Prudential Insurance Company estimated from a survey of 22 countries that 1% of all deaths in the temperate zone were caused by measles. He observed that case of measles ended fatally. Um, well, I don't think, I think when you're bioengineering stuff, <clears throat> the data about pre-existing conditions really kind of pre-existing. Here's how pre-existing conditions would fall into this. If they're bioengineering a disease, right? Let's say that they're going after Hawaii and bioengineering measles to get the uh, indigenous population, you know, getting the measles or something, right? Well, it, it really doesn't become that hard to, A, hide what you've been doing because you're dealing with a group of people who probably have a lot of pre-existing health problems, right? Because the lower the economic scale, the more likely pre-existing, just from basic things like sanitation, quality of access to decent food. So there's a lot of things that could be considered pre-existing when you look at a poor population, right? Like it may be easier to trigger the autoimmune system of a poor, poor population and I'm just guessing here because it makes sense, right? If your nutritional level isn't that great in a population of people, introducing some viruses would probably be accomplished in ways that they figured out, right, with all this bioengineering. So, yeah, it's, it, would, it would start to then look like, well, look, you know, all these people got measles that they were likely given to by these people, right? <clears throat> then they come in and say, well, you know, we worked for 100 years and now we have a vaccine. So trust us, take this vaccine for the next 100 years. So yeah, so kids today are still getting measles vaccines, right? Because of this belief of measles, that clearly we must have gotten this belief from measles being used as some sort of bioengineering in some sort of dark countries, people with dark skin, right? So anyway, so um, <clears throat> because here, here is what they say, but this, this really got my attention, right? <laughs> it said... Kind of like I was thinking, I kept thinking, well, well, okay, 
how do they explain where measles or smallpox even come from? Because I just had this huge conflict in my brain between smallpox and measles. Well, this is what they said in this one paper that really got my attention. Because remember, this is all their script that they're writing. Because now they would be writing their script to cover all of these deaths from these tragic measles cases through history, right? So I was curious to say what what would be their position on this? Like, what, what lie are they selling to make all this measles stuff make sense? Just like, remember when I was going through all the research with why they wear wigs? Well, remember, they write all this stuff, okay? So obviously, you know, they wrote the whole wig story to have it go back to, oh, the early Egyptians wore wigs. <laughs> well, I don't know. You know, you have to question the whole Egyptian theory, right? Okay, so here, here is what it says. The origin of smallpox is unknown. However, the earliest evidence of the disease dates back to the 3rd century BCE in Egyptian mummies. So now we're being told that um, they, they, they could figure out smallpox from mummies, right? And remember, the mummies are how they figured out, and the Egyptian thing was how they figured out the gold and the jewels, right? That big magic trick, right? So... Question it all, kids. Always question it all. Okay, so it went on to say, the disease historically occurred in outbreaks. Well, yes, because when you're bioengineering something, you're probably doing it in spurts, right? They probably they probably lay out some sort of plan somewhere in this group of evil eugenicists, right? Somebody somewhere is saying, okay, well, we're gonna we're gonna give. Um, an outbreak to um, the population Africa and we're going to do it from this time period to this time period because after we populate this germ into that population then logically speaking somebody should be able to say well we will know at about this point when it's really kicked in and become more of an epidemic right this to me would seem like basic business plan modeling, right? You sit down, you go, okay, I'm going to spray the stuff here. Then by this date here, everybody, everybody will be really sick. Then by this date here, we can yell to our friends in the press, hey, we got a major outbreak. Then by then you start putting the um, relief fires out to get the public so sympathetic to send you a ton of money because you're now killing an entire population. Yeah. Evil always has to come package as help. So anyway, so now I moved down here a little bit to 54 because that was my era. Um, and there is so much of this virus stuff. I mean, really, go look, okay? So, um, oh, wait a minute. I was back here before I wandered off there to the um, Egyptian thing because the Egyptian thing on it, oh, okay. So now they're telling us <laughs> that they can... <laughs> They can historically trace uh, smallpox to Egyptian mummies. Yeah, okay. Um, so it was historically occurred in outbreaks. In 18th century Europe, it is estimated that 400,000 people died from the disease per year. Smallpox is estimated to have killed up to 300 million people in the 20th century. That, that's a, that's, well, we know they're lying about the numbers, but that, that's a pretty significant number of people they're saying here, right? 300 million people just in the 20th century. And about 500 million people in the last 100 years of its existence. Earlier deaths 
included six European monarchs. See, see, they're, they're spraying and poisoning themselves too, right? Uh, see, you also have to consider that. Just because they say some monarch got it, well, why they get it? Well, maybe they wanted to exterminate one of their own. Who knows, right? Who knows? But when you're going around, it appears to me that if your business plan is to go around spreading disease, you probably have a lot of cases of, oh, let's say random applications going on where you might spray some parts that you didn't mean to spray and kind of, whoops, you know, we didn't mean for million to get measles. We only, you know, we only met, so you see how a lot of things in the planning could really, it would seem to me like run awry, right? Okay. Um, as recently as 1967, 15 million cases occurred a year. That's smallpox, huh? Um, inoculations for smallpox appears to have started in China around the 1500s. So they're saying they had some sort of um, vaccine in China in 1500s. Well, don't know if I believe it. But anyway, Europe adopted this practice from Asia in the first half of the 18th century. Okay, now here's the date we should pay attention to. In 1796, Edward Jenner, J-E-N-N-E-R, introduced the modern smallpox vaccine. And then, in, so 1776, and by then they'd been having all of these, uh, Europe, let me see, they, 400,000 people died each year. I mean, lots of people were getting wiped out, right? Okay. Um, he introduced, oh, in 1967, the WHO, who are you going to call? That would be the World Health Organization. Intensified efforts to eliminate the disease. Yeah, I bet they did. Smallpox is one of two infectious diseases to have been eradicated. The other being render pests in 2011. The term small, I have to look up what render pest is. I'm confused by that, but I'll look that up and get back to it if it means anything. The term smallpox was first used in Britain in the early 16th century to distinguish the disease from syphilis, which was then known as the great pox. Other historical names for the disease include pox, speckled monster, and red plague. Huh. Which, another thing that's interesting is now they're talking about monkey pox, right? These people are big on the pox business. So, yeah, let's take a look a little bit of this pox business. I have more about the monkey pox, but somewhere in this fall. But anyway, um, they're into this cows and monkeys and stuff. It, okay, the English physician, Edward Jenner, demonstrated the effectiveness of cowpox to protect humans from smallpox in 1796, after which various attempts were made to eliminate smallpox on a regional scale. Boy, that's really confusing. So they were looking into cowpox as, I guess, the vaccine element to protect from smallpox. Okay. Okay. That was 1796, after which various attempts were made to eliminate on region. Okay, in Russia in 1796, the first child to receive this treatment was bestowed the name Vaxinov. 
by Catherine the Great and was educated at the expense of the nation. So some kid in 1796 supposedly got the first vaccine and got some reward, I guess, to start to instill into the public mind that vaccines were an important way to protect children, right? Cause and effect. That's how evil works. They can't get you to submit to a bunch of really horrific um, things within their medical community if they don't give you the, the disease in the first place, right? Okay. The introduction of the vaccine to the new world. See, this is why it's interesting because we're considered the new world, right? And they talk about the new world order, right? Took place in Trinity, Newfoundland in 1800 by a Dr. John Clinch, C-L-I-N-C-H. He was the, <laughs> these people are connected in some very interesting, strange backstory. Wait, okay. So Dr. John Clinch was the boyhood friend and medical colleague of that Jenner person I was talking to in a minute. The That, that was Edward Jenner who introduced the modern smallpox vaccine. So his buddy, this person Jenner, um, introduce the vaccine to the new world so they always have their friends involved now don't they as early as 1803 the spanish crown organized the bombas expedition to transport the vaccine to the spanish colonies in the americas and philippines and establish mass mass vaccination programs there the U.S. Congress passed the Vaccine Act of 1813 to ensure that safe smallpox vaccine would be available to the American public. So 1813, they're already kicking into gear with what was the effect of what they already caused, right? Got that one straight, kids? So yeah, they caused this thing. Now they're moving into what the cure is, and that would be 1813. So, they wanted to make sure they had a safe smallpox vaccine. Um, by about 1817, a very solid state vaccination program existed in the Dutch East Indies. Supposedly, the last major European outbreak of smallpox was in 1972 in Yugoslavia. After a pilgrim from Kosovo returned from the Middle East, where he had contracted the virus. The epidemic infected 175 people, causing 35 deaths. So the authorities declared martial law over this outbreak, right? These outbreaks have an everlasting effect because what can happen, okay, in 72, you know, after all those generations before where measles were a problem, now they can say, well, we don't want to return to how it was before, so we must act immediately. See how these things can have very long-term reactive kind of details attached to them? Because they've already persuaded the public that all these horrible things happened to these populations, which likely they did in probably worse numbers than they're admitting to, right? So this thing can be rolled downhill for a very long time. So anyway, so they had a new outbreak in 1972, and... Um, that caused the, them to declare martial law, enforce quarantine, and undertook widespread revaccination of the population, enlisting the help of the who you gonna call. 
In two months, the outbreak was over. Prior to this, there had been a smallpox outbreak in May to July of 1963 in Stockholm, Sweden. So yeah, you can start to get the picture here, right? It appears to me that both vaccines appear to have some sort of interconnection. And I don't know. It just seems suspicious to me that the populations of people who seem to be getting wiped out, in fact, have been exposed to the measles and the smallpox. And if I have anything else on this in another file, because I've got a million files open to try to put this together for you, I will certainly come back on the other side with it. So anyway, so yeah, eugenics happens in many, many methods. And to me, it appears targeted. But really, the, the reason to share my work is for everybody to thinky-thinky for yourselves, okay? So it appears like a massive genocide using measles and smallpox on populations of people that have darker skin. Hey, call me suspicious, but that's how it appears to me. So just think about how does this appear to you? Okay, let's talk about the Bureau of Indian Affairs. The Bureau of Indian Affairs, also known as BIA, is a United States federal agency within the Department of the Interior. It is responsible for implementing federal laws and policies related to American Indians and Alaska Natives and administering and managing over, this is too big for me, 55, 55 million acres, 225,000 kilometers of land held in trust by the U.S. federal government for Indian tribes. So evidently the land is held in trust by the U.S. government. Interesting, huh? <laughs> Can't even have their own land back. It renders services to roughly 2 million indigenous Americans across 574 federally recognized tribes. The BIA is governed by a director and overseen by the Assistant Secretary for Indian Affairs who answers to the Secretary of the Interior. The BIA or Bureau of Indian Affairs with tribal, works with tribal governments to help administer law enforcement and justice, promote development in agriculture and infrastructure. The BIA's mission and mandate historically reflected the U.S. government's prevailing policy of forced assimilation of Native peoples and their land, beginning with the Indian Self-Determination and Education Assistance Act of 1975. The BIA has increasingly emphasized tribal self-determination and peer-to-peer -peer relationships between tribal governments and federal government. Well, I wonder how that's working out. Anybody trust the federal government? Between 19, excuse me, between 1824, that gives us a date there, and 1977, the BIA was led by a total of 
42 commissioners, all of whom six were ind indigenous de descent. So yeah, these people really weren't totally represented. Surprise, surprise. And here are some agency things, okay? They have the Office of Indian Trade from 1806 to 1822. In 1789, U.S. Congress placed North American relations within the newly formed War Department. By 1806, the Congress had created a Superintendent of Indian Trade or Office of Indian Trade within the War Department, who was charged with maintaining the factory trading network of the fur trade. The post was held by Thomas McKinsey from 1816, oh, excuse me, McKinney from 1816 until the abolition of the factory system in 1822. Boy, they're always about that money, aren't they? Okay, the government licensed traders to have some control in Indian territories and gain, oh, yeah, well, of course, the Indian trade was so the government could license traders to have some control over the territories and get a share of the trade. Then they had this thing called the Bureau of Indian Affairs, 1824. That was the abolition of the factory system. So this factory system, I guess, they operated within the territories to grab part of the money back. Okay, the Bureau of Indian Affairs was formed, March, I already said that, um, they preferred to call it the Indian Office. Then they had this era, they name all these things, right, called the Removal Era. That was 1830 to 1850. The BIA's goal to protect domestic and dependent nations was reaffirmed in the 1831 court case, Cherokee Nations versus Georgia. So yeah, um, they were enforcing expansion um, and the Cherokees were fighting it and they won something in court. This stuff could take months and years and I certainly hope you will go over to the website and learn a lot more about this. Okay, let me get down here to some other key points. So all this is going on, and darn those activists, right? With the rise of American Indian activism in the 1960s and 1970s, and increasing demands for enforcement of treaty rights and sovereignty rights, the 1970s were a particularly turbulent period of BIA history. The rise of activist groups such as the American Indian Movement worried the U.S. government and FBI responded both overtly and covertly and other to suppress possible uprising among, yeah, well, the CIA and those people are always working covertly, right? And probably there's these leading Indian groups. Now, I do not know this for a fact, okay, but I'm guessing the leading, current leading Indian groups are probably these people, right, not the real Indians. Controlled opposition, folks. Controlled opposition. So anyway, so they had an occupation of BIA headquarters in 1972. Um, about the Trail of Broken Treaties walk. Yeah, uh, the Broken Treaties, I have a um, documentary over at the website to take a look at. Remember, when you're dealing with psychopaths, they're going to change the rules every two seconds and look no further than the Native American Indians to see exactly how this works, okay? How they set up things 
I talked about these people, the Indians, when I was talking about, what was it, um, Appalachia, that Trail of Tears, that was to get them off of some property where they discovered some something, gold, oil, or something. It's always about renegotiating a good deal for them, a better deal for them, a way to rob and steal. So let me just close with a mission statement of the BIA. The Bureau is currently trying to evolve from a supervisory to an adversary role. However, this has been a difficult task as the BIA is known by many Indians as playing a police role in which the U.S. government historically dictated to tribes and their members what they could and could not do in accordance with treaties signed by both. You make a deal with the devil and you come up with nothing but devil juice all over you. segment I'll be talking about the difference between these boarding schools for indigenous children in Canada and the United States and it's a pretty big file um, I found a data sheet where somebody had um, written up the comparisons so I'm going to basically read from that and I may break it into two parts I don't know yet um, you know, it's interesting because a few years ago, I was set to interview a man from Canada. He's a man, well, he says he's a priest. I think he's a liar. But anyway, so um, I was set to interview him a few years ago because they were uncovering bodies of indigenous children in Canada. And the guy just like blew me off. And then I got busy with all this other stuff. So kind of heading back in that direction. So it's interesting when you look at the two now especially because we've got the triangle of the United States, Canada, and the UK going on here. So let me just read here. Comparing the histories of Indian residential schools in Canada with Indian boarding schools in the U.S. is almost like comparing apples and oranges. A true comparison is nearly impossible since so little data on the schools and children in the United States are available. I guess they didn't jot much down, did they? Unlike Canada, where the 2008 Indian Settlement Act and creation of the Truth and Reconciliation Act helped unlock and organize government and church records, there is no definitive information on the number of Indian boarding schools or children who attended in the United States. But with hundreds of unmarked graves being uncovered at Canadian residential schools and a new federal Indian boarding school truth initiative, launched in the U.S. by Interior Secretary Deb Hallan, Laguna Pueblo, the boarding school, excuse me, the boarding school eras in both nations have drawn increasing scrutiny. Yes, because they started uncovering graves of children, kind of couldn't keep covering it up, right? So there has never been a thorough accounting of this information. Um, yeah, pretty crazy stuff, huh? A, I'll continue reading here. A review by Indian Country Today of the in, indigenous boarding school eras in both countries found significant similarities, particularly since the Canadian system was patterned after the early boarding schools in the United States. 
Yeah, everybody always thinks United States leaders in technology. How about leaders in murder and eugenics, right? But while Canadian officials have apologized for their operation of the schools and are in the process of paying compensation to those who were forced from their homes into the boarding school system, the United States has offered no such apologies or payment. In fact, U.S. officials have barely acknowledged the policy existed. Canada operated 139 federal schools with more than 150,000 indigenous children attending between 1870 and 1997, according to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. The numbers, however, don't include schools operated without federal support by some religious orders or provincial governments. Between 1920 and 1988, Canada also operated nearly 700 federal Indian day schools with about 200,000 children attending. In the U.S., there is no comprehensive index to records created by the Bureau of Indian Affairs. The National Archives and Records Administration's vast record group 75 contain records beginning from about, let me see, okay. Supposedly the National Archives have data from about 1774, including those from the Bureau and its predecessor agencies. Records are arranged according to tribes' proximity to the Bureau of Indian Affairs, 12 regional offices, and 83 agencies. I don't know. <laughs> what they're saying is that, that records are strewn out between a whole bunch of different agencies, right? I mean, this solves, follows a pretty distinct pattern, doesn't it? Think about the census records in this country. Um, also, it follows the patterns with Ireland. Remember Ireland with those all those... Um, homes for the women and the children seemed to have lost all the records didn't jot much down did they Christian missionaries also operated more than 25% of schools in the US and records for those schools are overseen by individual denominations the Catholic Church operated about a hundred schools making it most of the Christian schools the U.S. estimates have been left to researchers who have concluded there may have been as many as 400 boarding schools operated by the federal government and Christian ministries. 400 missionary, yeah, a lot of these are hidden under the, the Christian missionary thing, so. According to the Boarding School Healing Coalition, this is that, that was the group in Canada because nothing's been done here really, um, by 1900, there were 20,000 children in boarding schools, and by 1925, that number had more than tripled. And remember, this is a key area when they were running all those orphan trains, all that, right? Between 1900 and 1925, a very significant movement of children in this country. And now we have these um, poor Indian children in the mix, right? By 1926, 83% of Native children in the United States attended boarding schools. Beginning in the early 1930s, the federal government began creating more Indian day schools and closed some boarding schools boosted by legislation 
enacted to help Native children attend public schools. The numbers, however, are unknown. Yeah, no one knows, right? Numbers aren't the only difference in the Canadian and U.S. boarding schools. All you have to do, kids, is look for these key words. Just type that into your little computer there or your whatever you're working on. Look for boarding schools, Indian residential schools, and the world will unlock all of this horror for you. Both countries sought to restrict its indigenous populations to clearly defined zones of land called reservations or reservations beginning in the early to mid-19th century, effectively separating them from their traditional substance way of life. Both countries sought to remove indigenous people from their lands in order to make way for settlement by whites. And like the Americans, <clears throat> Canadians embraced assimilation policies aimed at civilizing indigenous people through education that separated them from family, forbade speaking of native languages, or engaging in traditional culture or spiritual ways. In both cases, the aim was to extinguish indigenous holes on land and resources through erasure of culture and identity, and finally subsuming indigenous people into the bottom rung of capitalistic systems that would render them powerless. Sounds like the caste system to me. Life for Indian children at schools, both in Canada and the U.S., was one of emphasizing strict military-style order and harsh disciplines. Food was often inadequate, disease common, and the mortality rate was high. Most schools feature schedules of a half-day of mostly manual labor and a half-day of education, usually basic and vocational. Federal policies regarding Indian schools in both countries changed over several decades, reflecting changes in government policy and societal views of education. Huh. Beginning in 1890, the Progressive Era, as it is known in both countries, with its po policies of reform, created ideas regarding morality, economic reform, efficiency, and social reform, as a means to correct social ills and forward citizen participation in the country's democratic process. So we're looking at that year of 1890, the Progressive Era. And that's about the same time that I'll be getting back to when they started the mind tricks over in Germany. So it's an interesting time period we have here. Um, this period gave rise to the philosophy of progressive education, which emphasized maintaining connection to family, faith and science, and preparing students to participate in a democracy. I don't have I don't know how any of this is democratic, but anyway, that's their story, right? Okay, um, education policies in both countries and help reduce the single-mindedless focus on assimilation allowing more inclusion of native culture and language. Yeah, I don't think any of that really is true. Some researchers claim, however, that many schools failed to abide by these changes in federal 
Indian education policy, mostly maintaining the old styles of promoting the white American worldviews over native ways. Yes, well, all these researchers are basically their people, so of course they're going to come up with many little analyst ideas, right? Okay, let me read on here a little bit more. Um, it is important to note, however, <clears throat> that not everybody who attended the schools in both the U.S. and Canada described the same experiences. Some former students share fond memories of their boarding and residential school years. Some made lifetime friends. Well, I would beg to offer my two cents here. This sounds like complete BS to me that anybody would share fond memories, okay? Okay, moving on here. As more generations of indigenous people attended the schools, they developed survival strategies and ways to maintain their human dignity and to hold on to a measure of their languages and cultures. In many ways, going away to boarding schools and the attendant hardship grew norm normalized. Yes, they're always normalizing bad behavior, aren't they? But in many ways, Canada and the U.S. succeeded in the overreaching goals of assimilating and diminishing native language and culture like generations of immigrants who settled in the United States. Some native people left their cultures and traditions behind. That was the name of the game, right? The total name of this game was to strip them of their complete heritage because, remember, it would be very inconvenient if these people said a whole lot about their history, right? Wouldn't that be part of the goal here? To make sure that their history was wiped out of their minds and taught to do the new way? Okay... Let me go here. The Indian Act, enacted in 1876, is the primary law defining how Canada interacts with its indigenous people. So you're looking at the Indian Act of 1876. In 1994, the Act was amended to require indigenous children between the ages of 7 and 16 to attend one of the countries. So yeah, all of a sudden... They must attend, right? Children could be forcibly removed from their families by the government and placed in schools. The act also gained, granted the government power over Indians, their land and property. So 1894, Canada made the land grab, okay? Remember, they also, when they made that grab, when I was talking about a couple episodes ago, about how they have made this country their own corporation out of the um, deal with England, our birth certificates actually give them our, our children right there, okay? So them grabbing them is part of something they could already legally do, right? So um, as Canadians sought to create their federal residential school system, they were influenced by the U.S. And the model they used, which I'll be covering, I don't know what segment in this show, probably before this one, but the Carlisle... Indian Industrial School in Pennsylvania. That is the one you're looking for, okay? It was founded by Army General Richard Pratt. It's named Carlisle because it's in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Carlisle exemplified the popular belief among white Americans that rapid assimilation was the only hope for Native people. Pratt is the author of the infamous phase, Kill the Indian to Save the Man. So, um, 
Yeah, so all of this got modeled into Canada, okay? Um, in 1876, uh, Nicholas Flood Davin, a member of Canadian Parliament, was charged with investigating the use of Indian residential schools in the United States as an answer to Canada's so-called Indian problem. So 1876, Canada is looking into how the U.S. is doing their eugenics program, right? Favor favorably impressed with schools such as Carlisle, David recommended that Canada adopt a similar system. Funny how all these things come out of the United States, right? Didn't, weren't we just talking about Hitler saying this country was a little bit too harsh for him? <laughs> okay, um... This is how it kind of got started. Um, the remains of 215 children were found buried at the site of the former Kamloops Indian Residential School in May of 2021. So as they've been uncovering these bodies is what has been rattling their cages and getting them to start investigating, right? They didn't seem to be ever mentioning any of this before all of this, right? Seems like it just kind of cropped up out of nowhere when they found some bodies in graves. That's what happens when you don't jot things down. Nobody can find things until they stumble on them, right? Almost all of the residential schools in Canada were operated by Christian missionaries. The Catholic Church ran approximately 70% while the Anglican and United Churches were responsible for the rest. The federal government contracted directly with churches to run the schools. There were 80 Indian residential schools in operation in Canada in 1931, the pinnacle of the school program. In 1968, the federal government took over direct control of schools in 1968 in Canada. Okay, a lot happening around that 68-71 time frame. Although churches were still allowed to appoint school administrators, so I guess they probably took over the funding is what had happened, right? But it seems like the churches had to be in charge if they could put the administrators in, but I don't know. The last residential school in Canada closed in 1996. We are right now in 2022. That would be 23 years ago. By 1999, there were 2,500 lawsuits launched over abuse at the schools. Why do you think they're bringing all this up, right? They're starting to get hit in their pocketbooks with all these pesky little lawsuits. The Canadian government also ran day schools for indig indigenous children. Although they were separate from the residential schools, they were operated by the same missionary groups, Catholic and Protestants, that ran the residential schools. So, yeah, they had a lock on it, right? They're running the residential schools and the day schools. So, um, between 1920 and 1988, in Canada, there were nearly 700 federally run Indian day schools throughout the country. About 200,000 indigenous children attended those schools, which carried many of the same negative elements as the residential schools. Harsh discipline, erasure of native languages, and culture and sexual abuse. 
Okay, um, I'll finish up here. Few of the missionary leaders at the schools held teaching certificates. Most principals were clergymen with limited educational experience. Physical abuse was common and harsh. Sexual abuse was also pervasive. Although government documents indicate that officials were aware of these problems, they mostly chose to overlook them, according to reports by researchers and the Truth and Reconciliation Committee. So if you want to know more about what Canada is up to, go look for the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. A 1946 Special Joint Committee of the Senate and House of Commons examined conditions at the schools and suggested they be abandoned in favor of integrating indigenous children into provincial schools. So this was going on since late 1800s. In 1946, they said, hey, maybe we should make some changes, right? In 1951, and I'm still talking about Canada here, the Indian Act was amended to allow the federal government to enter into agreements with provincial schools to accept nat native students. By 1960, the number of native students in Canada attending provincial or public schools surpassed those living in residential schools. Churches strongly resisted the change. They resisted the change in 1960. More than 60 residential schools remained because these churches resisted the change. Residential schools increasingly served as orphanages and child, child welfare facilities for indigenous children beginning in the 1940s. By 1960, the federal government estimated that 50% of children at residential schools were there for child welfare reasons. In 1967, the Hawthorne Report, a government study, again strongly criticized residential schools and recommended more integration into provincial schools. In the 1960s and early 70s, a Canadian policy known as the 60s scoop emerged in, excuse me, a Canadian policy known as the 60s, that's all it's known as, S-I-X-T-I-E-S, they emerged in which child welfare authorities began to scoop up or remove, oh, I get it, okay, it's called the 60s scoop, okay, and this was, they began to scoop up or remove indigenous children from their families for placement into foster homes for which they were adopted into white families. The policy persisted into the 1980s. So, 60s and 70s until the 80s, they had this thing called the 60s scoop, where they went around and scooped up these children. By the, by the late 1960s and early 70s, a Canadian... Oh, I just read that, sorry. Uh, oh. So they were scooping them up then, up until the 1980s. But they said by the late 60s and early 70s, indigenous people began to gain a greater voice in the education of their children. 
But even today, indigenous people and children in Canada are taken away from their families disproportionately. In 2016, more than 52% of children in foster care were indigenous, were indigenous despite making up only 7.7% of the population. In 2006, the Indian Reservation Schools Settlement Agreement, that was after they got caught with the bodies, right, was approved by the Canadian government and indigenous people. Former residential school students received financial compensation. As part of the government, they paid $125 million. Oh, yeah, right. Okay, like anybody could pay. Everything's about money, right? This is money they printed up. They're paying these poor families with. Okay, um, there's a little bit here as far as his truth and reconciliation commit, I think is important to know. So let me um, come back on the other side with his, what this committee is and more about what went on between the U.S. and Canada because we need to kind of get an idea of what this picture is. And I'm sincerely hoping I'm sharing my research with you so you will then go and look further for yourself. I can't cover every minute detail. I'm just hoping to inspire you to go look for yourself a little bit more. How'd we get here? Not enough looking around. Many of us have heard the Native American story of the two wolves. What we were not told, however, is that the modern version going around on the internet is not the original story that is passed down through Native American tribes. The original story is much different, fundamentally so, even in the lessons it teaches. This is the internet version you may have heard. An old Cherokee is teaching his grandson about life. A fight is going on inside me, he said to the boy. It is a terrible fight, and it is between two wolves. One is evil. He is anger, envy, sorrow, regret, greed, arrogance, self-pity, guilt, resentment, inferiority, lies, false pride, superiority, and ego. He continued, the other is good. He is joy, peace, love, hope, serenity, humility, kindness, benevolence, empathy, generosity, truth, compassion, and faith. The same fight is going on inside of you, and inside of every other person, too. The grandson thought about it for a minute, and then asked his grandfather, which wolf will win? You might have heard the modern censored internet story ending like this. The old Cherokee simply replied, the one you feed. In the Cherokee world, however, and in the original story of the two wolves that has been passed down through Native American tribes, the story ends this way. The old Cherokee simply replied, if you feed them right, they both win, and the story goes on. You see, if I only choose to feed the white wolf, the black one will be hiding around every corner waiting for me to become distracted or weak and jump to get the attention he craves. He will always be angry and always fighting the white wolf. But if I acknowledge him, he is happy, and the white wolf is happy, and we all win. For the black wolf has many qualities, tenacity, courage, fearlessness, strong-willed, and great strategic thinking that I have need of at times and that the white wolf lacks. But the white wolf has compassion, caring, strength, and the ability to recognize what is in the best interest of all. You see, son, the white wolf needs the black wolf at his side. 
To feed only one would starve the other and they will soon become uncontrollable. To feed and care for both means they will serve you well and do nothing that is not a part of something greater, something good, something of life. Feed them both and there will be no more internal struggle for your attention. And when there is no battle inside, you can listen to the voices of deeper knowing that will guide you in choosing what is right in every circumstance. Peace, my son, is the Cherokee mission in life. A man or woman who has peace inside has everything. A man or woman who is pulled apart by the war inside him or her has nothing. How you choose to interact with the opposing forces within you will determine your life. Starve one or the other, or guide them both. This is the original story of the two wolves. Spread the message. Okay, I'm going to keep reading from this piece because it's very interesting as far as um, of all the things that I read, this thing kind of pulled it together. As the world expressed shock over recent discoveries of hundreds of unmarked graves of children at residential schools, this was in Canada, Pope Francis issued a statement saying he would meet the indigenous groups at the Vatican in December. I'm sorry, I don't know which year, just a few years ago. Among the issues expected to be discussed is the fact that the church still owes more than two, $20 million of its share of the settlement for survivors. Oh, okay. In 2019, the Canadian Federal Court approved a nationwide class action settlement for indigenous people who were forced to attend federal Indian day schools. The government began processing claims in January of 2021, like one year ago, with survivors set to receive compensation of $10,000 each. Ottawa is also investing $50 million in a day scholars revitalization fund. The government also promised to quickly distribute about $22 million to help in locating and commemorating unmarked graves of children who died at the schools. This fund is part of money already set aside for that purpose in the federal budget. So starting to pay out in 2021, and this year right now is 2022. Terrence Clark, Assistant Anthropology professor at the University of Saskatchewan is part of a team searching for remains. In an interview with Global News, he said, They, private owners, do have the right to turn us away, meaning private owners of the property, I believe, where they're trying to search. But I hope at some point, once the surveys are done, the government needs to think hard about what they're going to do with these properties.
Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau apologized in 2017 for his country's treatment of Indian residential school students, and he recently called on Pope Francis to apologize as well. Saying that we are sorry today is not enough, Trudeau said. It will not undo the harm that was done to you. It will not bring back the languages and traditions you lost. It will not take away the isolation and vulnerability you felt when separated from your families, communities, and cultures. He continued, We share this burden with you by fully accepting our responsibilities and our failings as a government and as a country. The United States has another idea. The indigenous population in the United States also appears to have swelled from an estimate 313,000 in 1879 to 2.9 million in 2010, according to U.S. Census data. Well, if you believe the U.S. Census data, the boarding school era here was preceded by the federal 1819 Civilization Act passed by Congress as a means to civilize and assimilate Native people into mainstream culture. Thus began a transition in U.S. federal Indian policy from adversarial to paternalistic. 1819, it's called the Civilization Act, okay? It's what I've been saying for a very long time now, right? Everybody in this country... Everybody, not everybody, but a lot, are mimicking psychopathic behavior, right? That is how it's been working. They've been dragging people over to their side. So what's happening? Everybody behaving like a bunch of mini psychopaths. Well, what's going to happen in the end here? I don't know, but this is beyond anything I really would have imagined, right? I really would have imagined anything like this happening. It's almost it's almost hard to kind of to process through your own brains, right? As far as how how evil how evil this really is, right? And the interesting thing is is that they want us to be like them, and that's what they did to these Indian people to take their culture, which was clearly pretty kind and getting along kind of a culture, and to transform them into many psychopaths. So. Congress relied on Christian missionaries already in place among among native communities to carry out its in directives to introduce Indians to the habits and acts of civilization, <clears throat> instruct them in the mode of agriculture, and for teaching their children in reading, writing, and arithmetic. They just want us <clears throat> to be like them. Sadly, they have a lot of people over on their side right now. Be careful of your choices, kids. In 1867, President Ulysses S. Grant, his administration created a peace policy designed to civilize Native people through assimilation education policies. They emphasized a Christian education as the best path to enable Indians to perform duties of the family, state, and church. Well, I would have to argue, it seemed to me like they were doing okay on their own, right? Okay, prior to the peace policy, Catholic missionaries played a role, a large role, in carrying out federal education policies. 
but found themselves pushed out as anti-Catholic sentiment favored Protestant schools in the late 19th century. So the Catholics got edged out by the Protestants. They regained their status and access to federal fundings, however, after a 1908 Supreme Court decision. The decision was Quick Bear versus Loop. It ruled that Native people could pay for tuition at Catholic schools by surrendering their treaty and trust fund money. The federal government operated about two-thirds of the U.S. Indian boarding schools. The federal government operated two-thirds. Most of the Christian boarding school and day schools were operated by the Catholic Church with more than 100 schools. The Bureau of Catholic Indian Missions was founded in 1874. They played a dominant role in influencing the government's Indian policy. So we got a lot of good dates to take a look at here. We're still circling around that mid-1800 time frame, right? By the 1880s, there were 60 Indian boarding schools. This I'm talking about the United States right now. 60 Indian boarding schools servicing 6,200 children. The boarding school heyday lasted until the 1930s, and some historian described the era as Native education history as education for extinction. Yes, that's what happens when you try to change all their customs, their language, steal their children. Yeah, extinction, also known as eugenics, right? But this is different because of the way they set out to eradicate everything about them. In 1891, Congress passed the first mandatory school attendance law for Native children. And in 1893, Congress empowered the Secretary of the Interior to withhold rations and annuities from parents who refused to send their children to school. Unlike Canada, however, parents could choose to send their children to public or mission day schools. But lack of transportation, lack of proximity to local schools, and money for clothing and food forced many families to send children to faraway boarding schools. As in Canada, death was a very real possibility for Indian boarding school students. There's a publication that I looked up called Indian Country Today. They found several copies of pre-printed boarding school roster forms, okay? And they had uh, columns labeled. Um, these forms were from the Bureau of Catholic Indian School, okay? So that's another name, Bureau of Catholic Indian School. And they had columns labeled graduated, ran away, and died. Three columns. Schools were paid by the federal government according to the number of children attending based on the filing of such documents. The number of children who died at U.S. Indian boarding schools is unknown, however. As in Canada, U.S. boarding school policy often discouraged incurring the expense of shipping children's remains home. Yes, they didn't want to spend that money, now did they? They were usually buried near the schools in cemeteries or unmarked burial sites that have long since been forgotten. 
Some government religious boarding schools used an outing program in which teenage students worked for local white families or farmers. Although the outing program varied from school to school, students were mostly employed as farm laborers or domestics. Employers paid wages directly to the schools. Students were sometimes given a small amount of spending money. Some schools promised to give students their accumulated wages at graduation. In some cases, however, students received nothing. Educators viewed the program as a valuable extension of the assimilation process. Yes, I bet they did, didn't they? And it appeared that I looked in Canada did not employ an outing program. This is kind of a way to uh, farm out child slaves, right? Child slaves to people to get them working. Although not well documented, Christian boarding schools in the United States also appear to play a role in child welfare, as they did in Canada. In this publication, Indian Country Today, found documents in the Bureau of Catholic Mission Archives indicating that in the 1930s, some schools were paid by local child welfare agencies to house and care for homeless children or those removed from their homes. So now these schools can become dumping grounds of kids that they remove from homes. Boy, that's interesting, right? There are many anecdotal stories of sexual abuse at U.S. boarding schools, but unlike Canada, few survivors have, have successfully brought lawsuits against churches or the government. In 1928, the Indian Defense Association released a scathing report detailing the poor conditions in tribal communities and Indian boarding schools. Social reformer John Collier, the association's secretary, championed the inclusion of progressive education ideals in Indian education programs. Where have we heard this before? Oh, let me think here. Huh. Same thing with the homes for the mentally handicapped. You know, the reporters snuck in there and then made these scathing reports, right? 1928, scathing reports. Okay, so what did they do from there? Well, 1933, President Franklin Roosevelt, he appointed Collier, the guy who made the scathing report, as head of the Bureau of Indian Affairs where he helped to drive a number of important changes in United States federal Indian policy. Under the Indian Reorganization Act, or um, the, um, wait a second, let me turn this off. I don't know, nobody called me for a month and then all of a sudden I'm online and I have to buzz, right? Okay, so let me get back here. Okay, so this dude Collier, John Collier, C-O-L-L-I-E-R, he, uh, got appointed by Roosevelt after he comes up with a report in 1928. 1933, Roosevelt says, hey, Collier, you're our guy. We're going to put you in charge of the Bureau of Indian Affairs. I have a little history of the Bureau of Indian Affairs in one of these segments. Okay, under the Indian Reorganization Act or the Indian New Deal, I guess everybody had a New Deal, right? Indian New Deal, Collier forwarded changes that included abolishing the Indian Allotment Act and encouraging reservation leaders to create their own constitutions. 
excuse me, under Collier's leadership, the government created 100 community day schools on reservations and enacted the Johnson O'Malley Act of 1934. Under the act, the government subsidized native attendance at public schools, so they started getting them into schools around 1934 on their reservations, right? Bring the schools to the reservations. Collier advocated for better training for teachers at native schools, a more natural setting for students in which they were raised at home with family while attending school appropriation of funds to encourage traditional arts and crafts and more acceptive of native language and culture. Ultimately, however, the schools mostly failed to reinforce traditional culture, but changed their curriculum to focus on progressive educational ideals, reinforcing a more democratic scientific model. So basically, they just decided they would destroy their culture on the reservations at schools, right? Collier's policies did not include abolishing boarding schools, but the heyday of off-reservation boarding schools came to an end as the schools began to close in the 1930s. By 1969, that was the year I graduated from high school, about two-thirds of Native students in the United States attended public schools. Two-thirds, okay, that's good to know. However, they frequently lagged far behind non-Native students in achievement and dropped out at higher rates. Yes, they basically, from what I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, you may find something different, they basically set them up to say, well, we're going to come and educate you on the reservation while at the same time they kept these other very troubling places open, right? So to me, it looks like a total bait and switch. There was a special congressional subcommittee released a report in 1969 called Indian Education, a National Tragedy, a National Challenge, that found that many school districts used the John O'Malley Act funds to supplement general operating budgets rather than special supplementary programs for Native students as directed in the Act. Well, they always come up with these Acts, and the idea of the Act is to get taxpayers to agree that they're good ideas, right? Well, almost in most cases what they do is they change around the rules, and that money never goes toward the intended purpose. Here again, a massive pattern in this country get the taxpayers to agree that, yeah, no one wants to see somebody homeless, right? So they enact these laws and get money, and then they spend the money somewhere else. They said, um, School districts provide no detailed accountability for use of this money, the report noted. Indians rarely get an opportunity to decide how the funds should be spent. The classroom and the school have become a kind of battleground where the Indian child attempts to protect his integrity and identity as an individual by defeating the purpose of his school. The act had been updated over the years to require inclusion by the Native community in directing funds and determining programming. And how much you want to bet this act of whatever year that was, 1969, nothing has likely changed. Everything has remained the same. 
after World War II and the Indian Relocation Act, in which Indian families were encouraged to resettle in cities, Native children began to be removed from their families by child welfare authorities at higher rates than non-Native children. By the 1970s, 25 to 35% of Native and Alaskan Native children were removed from their homes by government welfare agencies, with 85% of those placed with non-Native families. The Indian Child Welfare Act was enacted in 1978 to stem the flow of Native children away from families and community, with Congress recognizing that cultural ignorance and bias within the child welfare system were the main drivers of the removal of Native children from their homes. It's hard to read this with a straight face. This was 1978. The act was created to protect the best interests of Native children and to promote the stability and security of tribes and families. The act establishes preferences for placing children with extended family or other tribal families and recognizes tribal sovereignty and jurisdiction over decisions regarding their own children. By the turn of the 21st century, the act has come under fire by conservative political leadership as unconstitutional and discriminatory toward white adoptive parents. Finally, although U.S. federal Indian policies have improved since the beginning of the Civilization and Assimilation Act, there is still much to be done. Well, I don't even know what to say here, right? I mean hand these people a problem, and it only gets worse. Uh, okay, let me get down here. Um, I don't know what else to say. I don't know what else. For more than a century, the department was responsible for operating or overseeing industrial... Excuse me. Let me start over. For, mo for more than a century, the department, that would be the Bureau of Indian Stuff, was responsible for operating or overseeing Indian boarding schools across the United States, the initiative states. While it may be difficult to learn of the traumas suffered in the boarding school era, understanding its impacts on communities today cannot occur without acknowledging that painful history. Only by acknowledging the past can we work toward a future we are all proud to embrace. Directives in the initiative do not yet include specific plans to explore current and past boarding school sites. The U.S. has never apologized for its boarding school policies. Okay, what I'd like to close with are some couple of random thoughts, and then I'd also like to talk about a school, specifically an Indian industrial school that is located about an hour from where I currently live. A couple things. Um, solar did not work very well for people in 
Texas a couple of years ago when they had those outages because people had posted that um, they had solar generators and there wasn't sun during that time. So what I would suggest is look into solar as a backup plan, okay? They're selling some really inexpensive solar lights right now and you could get those cheap solar lights, charge them up in the winter during the day, and then give yourself a little extra light at night. So you could use solar as a way to not have to use so many batteries. Now, do I think these things will run forever? No, of course not. But I think they're a good idea to have as a backup plan. But don't rely just on the solar. Also, go look at history for yourself. Are there any um, Indian industrial schools in the state where you're living? Or if you're from another country, are you interested in what's going on in this country? Over at the website, I have some interesting maps that will show you the progression of how the land got stolen. That I'm sure of. Um, not sure of a lot of other things. That's why I wanted to open this file up to hopefully um, get my mind thinking about how exactly did this all happen. Now, I'm real sure that there were horrible things that were perpetuated against the Indian people. Sounds to me like the psychopaths came in to a group of very nice and kind people and were able to outmaneuver them. Now, did the leadership get compromised along the way? Highly likely, right? Um, but the facts still remain. But why are they called Indians? I don't know. Because remember that story about Columbus supposedly was going to India and got lost and found this country. See how that could work? So why the name India? They all share the same kind of facial features in that part of the region between people in India, Indians, Chinese. There's, there's a similarity in the facial features versus the more European style features, features, facial features. Excuse me. So what does that all mean? I don't know. Right now, I'm mainly taking a look at what are the overall eugenics that have been going on and why certain classes of people. That is the interesting part in all this, right? Because it doesn't take a genius to figure out that these people are clearly pretty racist, if you ask me, based on the genocide going on, right? All this talk in this country about racism and this and that, I don't believe, I know I'm not, I don't believe a lot of good people are in fact racist. Racism is their idea. So, did something happen back then between some black Jesus and these people? Yeah, likely they certainly have a hang-up and certainly want to perpetuate what I would consider a tremendous amount of harm toward people in those racial categories. But that's just what I'm thinking right now, right? And most importantly, how did we let it all happen? Likely by this thing about the others I've been talking about. Get everybody to think of somebody else as the others, right? That way you don't really relate to people. Like, who could relate to somebody if your parents were white settlers in Montana like I was to somebody who their family came over on some dreadful boat out of Africa? See what I mean? Divide and conquer is, in fact, the name of the game. So let me get back to um, close off with this very interesting school. It's called the Indian Industrial School at Genoa, Nebraska. And I have some very, very interesting pictures that they put together from this group that's going out and trying to, you know, 
resurrect these things and see what's going on. And keep in mind, the United States has not apologized for anything. Okay, so the facility was completed in 1884 and operated until 1934. It is now restored and is owned and operated by a foundation as the Genoa U.S. Indian School Museum. The building is listed on the National Register of Historic Places. I have been to this town because I used to go to auctions around here when I was selling on eBay. So yeah, obviously when I was there, I had no idea. So I'm telling you about this because I do believe that this is true. I see no reason to think that these people over here in a small town in Nebraska... Now, I'm not ruling out that people in small towns don't do equally horrific things. So don't, don't, don't misguide that part of it, right? Okay. Um, so I have every reason to believe that this is real. So the facility opened on February the 20th, 1884. And like other such schools, its mission was to educate and teach Christianity and European American culture to Native American children for assimilation. The village of Genoa, Nebraska was selected because the federal government already owned the former Pawnee Reservation property there. However, existing buildings on the site were unsuitable and in poor repair. The Pawnee had been removed to Indian Territory in 1879. The Pawnee Nation really were all part of that area. Also, the name Omaha, that's because there was a tribe of Omaha Indians. And I live in the part of the country where the Ponca Indians once lived. Matter of fact, the Ponca Indians, they don't own um, casinos around here. They own real estate. So I have some neighbors a couple doors down who are Ponca members. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah. So the buildings had to be pretty crummy if they were too poor of shape for these people, right? So, like many buildings designed for Indian school campuses, the main building was a simple three-story structure with a hipped roof and a small triangular pediment above the center entrance. The pairs of tall windows and the strong horizontal lines across the front created a balanced composition. And here again, lots of interesting pictures over there at the website of actually the actual kids who went to the school. The building extended at length from its front facade. This was a popular design during the late 1880s. You'll notice I've been mentioning that over and over because there's certain designs that they replicate over and over, like the Roman-style architecture. Then they call it the Nouveau Roman. You see what I mean? And that is really just to put different years on the same kind of construction, right? Not that complicated, right? So the school expanded, eventually enrolling Native American children from 10 states and over 20 tribes. That's, that's quite a distance, right? Because Nebraska is dead center of this country. They call these states here flyover states, meaning that most people only ever fly over these states, right? So um, let me see. So yeah, 10 states and 20 tribes. That's a lot of, that's a lot of distance for those kids to be getting shipped, okay? In time, the school grew from the original 70... Now, remember, none of these numbers are correct, okay? From the original 74 students to an enrollment of 599. It encompassed more than 30 buildings on 640 acres. 
the U.S. government closed a school in 1934 during the Great Depression. At least 102 children died at the school as a result of abuse and neglect, though the true death toll is likely higher. Common causes of death were influenza, <coughs> COVID, <coughs> tuberculosis, another cooked up disease, pneumonia, and heart failure. That really got me. Why were these kids dying of heart failure? Could it be these places were also used as operations to test early hormone usage? That would be my big guess here, kids. Sounds to me like, you know, they were obviously testing on the other kids in the mental asylums and the other orphanages and the orphan trains and stuff. So why not the Indian kids, right? So um, pneumonia, yeah, uh, heart failure, very suspicious. Another one suspicious, accidental shootings. Well, what's the accident, right? Paralysis. How are kids getting paralyzed? Well, people get paralyzed. Uh, people, when you get Parkinson's disease and stuff, it causes a paralysis like of the face or something, right? So, and in one case, a freight car accident also occurred, though some may not have been accidents, but suicides. That is the dreadful, ugly underside of this thing. How many of those poor little children actually committed suicide? So, yeah, um, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. This one really has gotten me, okay? So, anyways, be safe out there. Goodbye for now. Only when the last tree has been cut down, the last fish been caught, and the last stream poisoned, will we realize we cannot eat money. There are two wolves fighting inside all of us. The first one is evil. The second one is good. Which wolf will win? The one you feed. When you were born, you cried and the world rejoiced. Live your life so that when you die, the world cries and you rejoice. It is better to have less thunder in the mouth and more lightning in the hand. Listen, or your tongue will make you deaf. Seek wisdom, not knowledge. Knowledge is of the past. Wisdom is of the future. The weakness of the enemy makes our strength. Do not judge your neighbor until you walk two moons in his moccasins. They are not dead who live in the hearts they leave behind. There is nothing as eloquent as a rattlesnake's tail. It is less of a problem to be poor than to be dishonest. A brave man dies but once, a coward many times. Make my enemy brave and strong, so that if defeated, I will not be ashamed. 
The bird who has eaten cannot fly with the bird that is hungry. Cherish youth, but trust old age. Wisdom comes only when you stop looking for it and start living the life the Creator intended for you. Not every sweet root gives birth to sweet grass. Take only what you need and leave the land as you found it. It is no longer good enough to cry peace. We must act peace, live peace, and live in peace. When a man moves away from nature, his heart becomes hard. Beware of the man who does not talk and the dog that does not bark. Our pleasures are shallow, our sorrows are deep. It does not require many words to speak the truth. Don't let yesterday use up too much of today. If a man is as wise as a serpent, he can afford to be as harmless as a dove. Poverty is a noose that strangles humility and breeds disrespect for God and man. Remember that your children are not your own, but are lent to you by the Creator. Walk lightly in the spring. Mother Earth is pregnant. Ask questions from your heart, and you will be answered from the heart. There is no death, only a change of worlds. What is life? It is a flash of firefly in the night. It is the breath of a buffalo in the wintertime. It is as the little shadow that runs across the grass and loses itself in the sunset. <laughs>